And I've worked on some legitimate turds, mind you. I've worked on. <laughs> I worked on the emoji movie. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> You've never admitted to that before. Does he want to? <laughs> yeah. I, I can edit this out, Joe. <laughs> I just mentally heard dun dun dun. <laughs> yes, Aaron. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. I'd rather starve to death in here than be eaten by one of those undead monsters! We're both gonna die! Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! All is lost. Cries of agony. Stars. Unity breeds power. Welcome to the 30th Crimson Head Podcast, reviewing and debating the new Resident Evil live-action series on Netflix, listening to your call-ins, and then interviewing our special guest, visual effects supervisor for the show, Kevin Lingenfelser, and joining us for that exclusive interview will be the writer and director of Resident Evil Arclay, John LeBaire. We may even be hearing from one of my old buddies from Stars. <laughs> I put in brackets sound of chicken as perhaps a, a, a hint who that might be. For a moment there, I thought he was referencing me. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I was going to maybe put in a sound effect, but hey, when you've got Chris Redfield doing a sound of a chicken. Natural voice actor. He knows what he's doing. My name is Joe White, and I have been told that I was once Chris Redfield and Richard Aiken in Resident Evil Remake, but it was so long ago, the fog of old age has made the inside of my head resemble Silent Hill. Joining me are the rest of your Crimson Head team, the Oracle Dragon. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We have Batgirl. Hi, guys. Welcome in. And George Trevor. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We all have our own very passionate thoughts on the show, which we'll be debating, whilst also listening to your reviews you so kindly sent us, starting with a call-in from Brad Vickers himself. My gosh, the actor for Resident Evil 3's Brad Vickers, Evan Saba, has this to say. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Uh, my name is Evan Saba. I play Brad Vickers in Resident Evil 3 Nemesis back in 1999. Uh, I've been asked to give an opinion on the new Netflix TV series, Resident Evil. I rather enjoyed it. Like, I understand fully of uh, how part of the fandom really wishes that a movie was made one-to-one of the first three OG games. Telling the story from the very beginning of the game one, game two, and game three, if they could, as close as possible to the actual games. Because until that's done, I think every fan is, is going to still have issues with everything because they just want that done. Anybody who doesn't mind a what-if story, this show actually does a good job. There's always, of course, people who've got problems with script and dialogue, and they don't like the look of their the characters that are on the screen or whatever. you got your issues. Those are issues that everyone's going to pick apart something they do or do not like. It's kind of subjective that way. 
For me, my personal opinion, I thought it was rather fun. It held my attention. I thought there was a lot of uh, fun play with uh, little Easter eggs and uh, references and the imagery that were all coming from the games. A lot of really interesting factors, like the cloning of Wesker uh, was pretty interesting. I like how the two daughters encompassed. It felt like they encompassed the energies of Jill Valentine and Claire Redfield. I thought uh, Billy was definitely like a kind of a Claire investigative, kind of puts her nose where it shouldn't be put, trying to get to some truths. Jill being Jade naming her Jade was still giving us a J to associate to Jill. And I thought that CG was amazing for a TV show. There was some great CG in there. The story kind of jumping back and forth uh, between the future and the present. I think some people didn't like that. I did like that. I liked how it gave you a future that we're going to end up at, but this is where we are. So how the hell did we get here? Uh, at least it kept the action kind of exciting. It wasn't going to be such an incredibly slow build to the action, which the games do. The games slowly build you up to a, an intense action. And, you know, that would be pleasing too. Like I said, a uh, one-to-one game, I'm on board. I would love to see a one-to-one film of, of the games for the fans. I think there was a lot of talented artists that worked on this show. People sometimes are a bit too hard on actors, especially younger actors, criticizing them uh, ruthlessly and harshly. It's not easy to be up there and act, so give them a little bit of grace. If uh, you didn't like it, that's okay, but no, no, no need to be mean to any of the artists that were involved creating this project. I say just keep an open mind, consider it a what if, and I do hope they get a second season. And that's my thoughts. Hello to the, uh, the Crimson team, and I uh, hope you, everybody has a, a great day. Evan picked up on the fact that the series jumps frequently between two timelines. It's been done before, you know, in The Witcher and Westworld, and I really enjoy it. We had the 2022 timeline with Albert Wesker, played by Lance Reddick, working as head scientist for Umbrella under new CEO Evelyn Marcus, played by Paola Nunes. I thoroughly enjoyed her performance. And two daughters, Billy, played by Sienna Agudong, and Jade, who was played by Tamara Smart. And the second timeline in 2036, set 14 years later, the post-apocalyptic world after a global viral outbreak, with main protagonist Jade, played by Ella Blinska, striving to understand the virus and develop an antidote, whilst evading Umbrella Corp with new CEO Billy Wesker, played by Adeline Rudolph. What I liked about the two timelines, it gave the series an opportunity to offer differing genres, just like the recent games, you know, a selection of survival horror, you know, with House Beneviento, for example, and then you get the more action-orientated levels with yeah. uh, Heisenberg. You've got, in 2022, the slower-paced survival horror with Billy's infection, and we get, you know, the, the human tragedy of that. The descent, the human descent, as you start to lose your humanity, and that's a lot slower-paced. Whereas in 2036, you are offered a kind of a, a faster action-paced survivalist narrative. One criticism I've seen of the flashback structure is that it drains the momentum of the action-focused 2036 time Line. What did you guys think? Did you find that thrust into the action in 2036 and then suddenly the momentum's drained while you're then getting sent straight the way back to 2022? Did that like drain a bit of the uh, the momentum out of the action? Depending uh, on the scene that you were looking at, to be honest, <laughs> I always come back to my boy, the spider. When the spider comes out, you automatically want to know what's going on, what's going on, what's going to happen. And then it just cuts. I guess throughout the whole series, it was happening so often that my brain was just like, all right, they're just going to cut to something else now because they're not going to give us the payoff right now. And then it goes. Right. It did kind of disconnect for me for a bit, but I kind of got used to it throughout most of the series. I think the problem for some people is that this type of nonlinear plot works best when one side of the story exists at a fixed 
point in time, while the other timeline provides a deeper look into the main plot. But with the Netflix series, the two timelines were pushed towards each other, but without actually then identifying the catalyst for what causes the outbreak, because surely the the whole point of that pre-apocalyptic timeline is to show us who Patient Zero was, what actually then caused the downfall of civilization that we then get in the 2036 timeline. I tend to find that technique a little bit confusing. When it's done well, it works. And, and when it's not done well, it you have to keep track of too much. For someone with a pinhead like me, it, it can be a bit of a distraction. I do enjoy narratives that have, you know, almost a puzzle box in trying to work out how do the two timelines join? What was the catalyst? What, you know, what occurred during that timeline to get us to the catastrophic post-apocalyptic world? The point of having the two timelines would be to show us, you know, how we got to that point in 2036. How, for example, Billy got to the point where we see her batting for the other side, as it were, you know, for Umbrella. So did we get an adequate explanation for how Jade ends up in this dystopian future as a survivor and why Billy then aligns herself with Umbrella? I didn't feel that it happened. I kept waiting for that moment, for that catalyst to occur where we see, you see the development of the two girls in the um, flashbacks. You see them developing into the people that they become. And somewhere along the way, I kind of missed the transition between two young girls living in a a new neighborhood to becoming the representatives of the, the separate factions. The only thing they kind of vaguely show is when Billy is more accepting of her dad, by the end, she's more accepting of Wesker because Jade was ready to leave him in the Umbrella Lab, but Billy didn't want to. For me, personally, the the scene where they pretty much get separated, where Billy gets taken by Umbrella, I honestly thought that was like the main focal point where we find out why they ended up separated. But when they continued on with her going to the facility and all this other stuff that happened, Personally, to me, it kind of felt like, okay, then why did she stay with Umbrella when Evelyn pretty much hates Billy now? But then all of a sudden in the future, Billy's the CEO and was raised by Umbrella? That, to me, don't make any sense because she wanted blood for what happened. Yeah. There's a lot of key points that are just flat out missing. Batgirl, were you, were you thinking that it actually might be that tyrant arm we see at the end? I believe it might be the tyrant, the one that causes the infection, but I might be wrong on that. Unless they take full liberties on it, because we never see the tyrant infecting anyone. Wesker already had the virus coursing through his veins when he got made into a kebab (laughs) in the game. (laughs) And there's no reference, is there? In the 2036 timeline, there's no reference back to what actually caused the outbreak. No. I don't know if they're setting it up. These kind of plot points are going to be addressed in a second season. Even so, it just kind of leaves you unsatisfied and, and confused that there's such a huge, you know, schism between the two narratives. This particular series is outside of the recognizable world of Resident Evil. What would really satisfy a lot of fans, and it would be satisfying to me as well, is if someone actually did a one-to-one live-action film of the first three games. If someone could make that narrative, write that story... And maybe it doesn't have to be all put together in one film, or it could be separate things, or it could be a limited series. You know, he's right. People keep seeing, oh, they're doing, they're finally doing Resident Evil. They're going to come out with this series. It's going to be the original stuff. And then they give us what they gave us, which is something completely not canon with alternative casting that a lot of people aren't going to like. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that we have not got anything that represents the canon of the games. We've never had a film made that really follows that storyline. 
And we're going to be discussing this with Kevin, but do you think that just by virtue of narrative that we have in the video games, do you think that's even possible? And the closest we've seen to an attempt on that obviously was Welcome to Wrecking City. They were not absolutely faithful. They too did stuff that was considered not canon. There's people that go, why the heck do you want a one-to-one adaptation of something that you can play into the big screen? For me, it's not necessarily a one-to-one adaptation. It's like you can take your freedoms and do different things. But for some reason, it's so hard to translate characters that have been already fleshed out and bring them their correct traits. Because there's a lot of times we see, let's bring up um, the Anderson film, we have Claire Redfield. Their Claire Redfield is nothing like the Claire Redfield that we know and love. She is completely different. And I love Allie Larder. And I feel like she could be a kick-ass Claire. But at the end of the day, her characteristics aren't there. Right. The closest thing we've gotten to a pretty solid, let's say, casting and character traits is uh, Sienna, uh, Jill, in Apocalypse. Even then, she was a little bit... Not a little bit. She was really badass. But there's still some traits that were kind of missing of her Jill. Right. But she was the closest thing we ever got to that. Is it even possible? I think it is. But I don't think everyone's going to be satisfied regardless. Oh, you'll never satisfy everybody. Okay, well, thank you to Evan Sabah there for a fantastic call-in. Thank you, Evan. Now, moving on, we have another review, this time from Nemesis for the win. Hello everyone, it's Nemesis for the win, and I'm here to give my review of the Resident Evil Netflix series. With the showrunners coming out stating the games were canon to the show, yet the show wasn't canon to the games, brought back feelings of previous statements made by directors and actors about liking the franchise and that they want to be faithful to the material as possible. With the past products fans have received, it felt like we're on a runaway ecliptic express heading for derailment. And for me, the Netflix series is just that, a show that tries to draw in younger fans with a teen drama with cringe hipster dialogue while trying to give fans of the games familiar names, monsters, and callbacks to hopefully keep them entertained as if we're brainless as the zeros on the screen. The major issue the show suffers from is the two-timeline system. Much like the timestamp frustration in Welcome to Raccoon City, the show bounces around too much for any meaningful things to happen on screen. Just when you get comfortable with a section and it starts to feel like Resident Evil, they create drama with the girls or jump to the other timeline, which becomes exhausting. Out of the two timelines, the 2022 timeline feels more Resident Evil than the 2036 timeline does, and where they stuff it full of Resident Evil creatures. Like, why are liquors even a thing in this show, considering Umbrella was cleaning up its act? Sadly, the 2036 timeline comes off as a 28 weeks World War Z spinoff, and maybe that would have been a better fit. Jade, played by Ella Belinska in the 2036 timeline, is essentially Alice from the Andersonverse. Her plot armor is extremely strong, and she's never really in any danger when things are going on. Sadly, you end up just disliking Jade because she puts everyone else in danger. The only two performances I can say that were enjoyable was Lance Reddick as Wesker and Paola Nunez as Evelyn Marcus. Reddick, playing the multiple Wesker, showed off Reddick's range as an actor, and he showed flashes of evil that we've come to know and love from the original game character. Nunez comes off as someone who's trying to prove she knows best, with a sprinkle of sass and sexiness, all while trying to keep her family together by drugging her wife. I did like most of the set design, especially the umbrella building and labs, even with their Game Boy levels of security, and I did enjoy some of the CGI that was used in this show. The zombies looked the part, and I did enjoy the subtle callbacks in the episode where the girls were essentially exploring their own house solving puzzles. The creator's use of the game lore was loosely interpreted as many things don't align with established material, 
Overall, the show is carried by two actress performances and what appears to be a bigger CGI budget than Welcome to Raccoon City. If I'm rating this on a scale of 1 to 10, 4 out of 10 puts it around how I feel about most of the Anderson-verse. A poorly written drama with cringy dialogue with a focus on over-the-top superhero action. I do want to thank the folks at Crimson Head for the opportunity to send in this review, and I hope to make more in the future. A lot of very accurate things there. I have more sympathy for the girls' performance as actors. Uh, I think they did a pretty good job. My love for Lance Reddick as an actor is one of the things that kept me watching it. But I disagree that the performances of the two young girls were less than acceptable. Given the material and given the circumstance, I think they did a very good job. I don't necessarily see it as it's anything to do with the performers themselves. I think it's more of the writing aspect and the way that yeah, the yeah. showrunners structured the show itself. And the CG was honestly the best part. Oh, absolutely. I think <laughs> the highlight, the, the big takeaway is that this thing is technically very high level. Yeah, I don't want to give any spoilers away for our interview that's coming up next with Kevin, but Nemesis for the win questions the appearance of the Lickers. I got the impression that it wasn't something that Umbrella themselves had unleashed. This is the post-apocalyptic world where BOWs and secondary infectants are, are running wild. He thought that Umbrella were trying to clear up their act. They had done as much as they possibly can, but this was, you know, this was the collateral damage that, you know, there were Lickers running wild. Mm-hmm. But also you got to think of the canon, because in the canon, liquors are technically zombies that mutated. So that could have been what happened in the futuristic world, because we see that in Outbreak. He made some other good points. His breakdown of pounding in teenage dialogue that was sort of cringy and, and trite. They really did try to force this thing into a mold that it just didn't fit in. It's interesting when you think about the fact this game is 25 years old. So potentially there are people almost as old as me tuning right. to watch this. There are people in their 50s, 40s, 30s watching this. And so, sure. yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if the, the idea was that, you know, they wanted to bring a younger new audience to it. If they were fearful that the majority of the kind of the Netflix subscribers wouldn't have played the video game. And so they wanted to try and appeal to people that just were coming in cold. I think their bait was a little weak, if that's what they were trying to do. The big rupture for me is that they were trying to make something. They did something and they gave it a name that was kind of unfair. They shouldn't have called it Resident Evil. They just shouldn't have. If they had called it something else, it would have lent more legitimacy to it. But when you call something Resident Evil, and it has so little to do with Resident Evil that you know, it's like, yeah, okay, I can see this is in an alternate universe, but you called it Resident Evil. You didn't call it Resident Evil, the new game. You called it Resident Evil. Resident Evil, new beginnings. Yeah, it doesn't live up to our expectation of what a Resident Evil product is. Where's the Resident Evil of this Resident Evil sandwich? You're the showrunner of a brand new Resident Evil series. Are you going to lean entirely into this rich history that we've got with the canon law or do something completely different? Netflix went for the middle ground, didn't it? It kind of dipped in and out whilst given this brand new universe. Do you disagree with going down that middle ground? If you're going to present something new, do you want to see something completely new and completely detracted and independent of the narrative or do you excuse, which I do, allowing a show to dip in and out of the canon, seasoning it? 
But that seasoning needs to be primal. It needs to be primary for the show. It needs to be either or. It needs to be in or out. Okay. You can't futz around with it. Everybody in the Resident Evil community is looking for a Resident Evil experience. Now, when you get something that takes you so far off of that track and you have to really fight to get back into it, you're fighting the fact that you're going into areas that have never been explored before in any of the canon. You're talking about characters that have no basis in reference to the original game. You can take all this previously understood information and this previously understood world and you can write a new story inside of it, but you can't write a story that takes place outside of it and still call it that thing. It just doesn't work. If you're going to do an adaptation of Resident Evil, do it in the same vein as Outbreak, because Outbreak had unique characters itself. Oh, woman, I was a about to say that. <laughs> a completely different story, but there is elements that make that story a part of the Resident Evil universe. Exactly. The first Anderson film was pretty decent yeah. for what it did back in the day, because it is a whole different story with different characters, but it is based around the Umbrella Facility. But mm -hmm. back then, they didn't have Leon, they didn't have Claire, they didn't have Chris. And mm -hmm. it made sense for us, but when they went off the rails with two, and they started adding Jill, and then Carlos, and then we're gonna add the Nemesis, that's when everything started to get muddy. To me, I feel like the best iteration that you can do is either you want to go headfirst, do either a one-to-one, -one, or you do something in the vein of Outbreak, which has some of the story elements being canon, like Umbrella like the virus, like where the virus comes from, but with completely different characters. Even Outbreak, Outbreak came in and ended up being canon by what, Resident Evil 7? That they mentioned the Melissa? Yeah, yep. Ashcroft, yeah. Outbreak was its whole separate thing back then, and we all ended up falling in love with Outbreak. Yeah, and since this Netflix was eight episodes long, they could have used each Outbreak character per episode and revolve around their stories. Oh, nice. It would have been perfect. Eight characters, eight different scenarios, eight different locations, like in the games. We just followed okay. them through it and how they regrouped together and escaped the city. They all yes. intertwined with each other. Exactly. It's perfect. You can attach all the stories with all the characters in their individual storyline. And then right at the end, like in Outbreak, you get the final blast. You have yeah, them all at connect. the very end, at the very end, they all are together reflecting on what happened. Yep. You can also play out with characters, but you can also do like an art play, which is basically what's the catalyst to him getting to that point. You have a set character, let's say Marvin, and how did Marvin get to the point that he is when he meets Leon or Claire? You can play around with it. You can also go back you go back and play out the story that we haven't seen. Grab the files. Give us how Spencer found the flower. If you went down the format that Oracle Dragon was referring to, having the eight different episodes, that could almost act as a flashback during those episodes. Yeah, you can have that play out. You can see how Umbrella became this tough, big power and how it did it crash. Mm -hmm. We don't see a lot of that in game. <laughs> this is going to turn into an outbreak podcast. <laughs> I still can't get out of Jay's bar because the controls just screw around with me. That awful PlayStation controller. Me and PlayStation controllers don't get along at all. Okay, now let's find out if King Dakota got along with Resident Evil, the Netflix series. What happened? Answering that question, we have, he's the king, King Dakota. Okay, so Resident Evil, Netflix. What happened? 
I mean, look, it's no surprise that many fans have not taken too kindly to this show, me included. And rather than just repeat the same criticisms that we already heard, I'm going to start this review off by saying something positive. That is that the special effects team here did a really good job. Because no matter how you might feel about a certain TV show or a movie, I feel that respect should always be given to those who spend countless hours working behind the scenes trying to do a good job. And the team here did a really good job, so... Kudos. That being said, however, the show itself is quite terrible, unfortunately. And to me personally, I think the biggest tragedy was Lance Riddick as Albert Wesker. Not just because he didn't look or act like the character, but because he gave such a pretty good performance, I felt that he deserved a new and original character to make his own. And he could still be the same man like he is in the show. He could still be a guy who loves his daughters, works for Umbrella, wants to do good, but is forced to do bad, that type of deal. The only difference is, to help fit more into the Resident Evil world, he could be from Umbrella's European branch and in his earlier years as a scientist briefly worked with both Albert Wesker and William Birkin at the Spencer Labs. And while he was there, he could have been one of the guys who helped run tests on Lisa Trevor. He could have also looked up to William Birkin as sort of a mentor figure and admired his genius. However, later, after the destruction of Raccoon City and hearing about how William's obsession with the G-Virus led to his own downfall, Lance Reddick's character could have made a vow to never follow the same path and to always try to put family first before work, hence why he's such an overprotective father. Plus, as an added bonus, I think, it would have been also great that not only was he one of the top scientists from Europe, he could also have been one of the top researchers responsible for the Nemesis program. That's right, Lance Riddick helped create the freaking Nemesis. That'd be beyond epic, in my opinion. Just picture it, seeing him, like, behind a test screen, running, you know, battle simulations with the Nemesis, having it fight, like, hunters, all sorts of BLWs, maybe a Mr. X. That would have been a great cameo. I want to say thank you to the Crimson Motor Podcast for listening to me. I truly appreciate your time. I am Darkota. All the other Resident Evil fans out there, stay safe and stay classy. Why wasn't King Dakota in the writer's room? That was brilliant. It does come back to what Joe was mentioning. You can have Resident Evil without having any of the canon characters. One of the things that's always tickled me, we pretty much found out that Wesker has like an illness, how he got like sick all of a sudden. I honestly thought they were reflecting on him with his virus was doing that. Because yeah. I was like, oh my goodness, they're actually remembering about him having the virus and that he has to take medication for it. Then we find out something else. <laughs> But did you not like that idea, Oracle Jack and everyone else? I really love the idea, as Evelyn Marcus put it, there were his blood banks, his antidotes, that dark family secret that he was having to inject himself with his daughter's blood. And then obviously that leads later on. We see the differing routes that the girls take in terms of the forgiveness they have, where we see Billy, she aligns herself with her father. So I thought that was quite interesting. I love what he said about Lance Reddick's character could have been a totally different character. It didn't have to be Wesker. And it would have been no. better if it wasn't, because then I would have said, oh, this is an adjunct story. The character doesn't have to be Wesker. And I love the idea of Lance Reddick's character being involved with other parts of Discovery, like the whole Lisa Trevor thing, inventing uh, Nemesis. That would be badass. Lance Riddick, his character being responsible for, or seeing him part of that, I think, was it the French lab? I think Paris is where they had the Nemesis Parasite. But apparently, remember, they retcon it. It's oh. a lost plaga now. Oh, crikey, we're getting into remake, remake <laughs> territory. Yeah, that's where me and Peter Fabiano disagree. I'm old school canon. <laughs> Someone who showed that without adhering to the specific plot points of the mansion incident with a completely new narrative, but still adhering to the pillars of survival horror, 
Sean LeBert's Resident Evil Art Clay, his film short, also entitled Dave. Sean was kind enough to provide us with a call-in. Over to Sean, we'll hear what he has to say. Hey, Crimson Head Podcast, it's Sean, the director of Resident Evil Art Clay and friendly neighborhood Resident Evil fan. So overall, as a show, I think it felt kind of lukewarm for me. Um, I think I still liked it a little bit better than the movie, Welcome to Raccoon City. Lance killed it. I think the actress for Evelyn was amazing as well. And um, I actually really dug the Orwellian nature of Umbrella and, and the amount of impact they have over the uh, planet. One of my biggest concerns is the pacing when it came to the backstory. The teenager drama aspect was kind of a, a hit or miss for me. Sometimes I really liked it. Sometimes I just didn't. And it kind of slowed me down. The visual effects for me were probably the best part of the show. I really liked the cloned aspect to this. That kind of really turned everything on its head and actually like surprised me. I love Burt's Wesker. Um, I was hoping for more closure between the sisters and we would actually find and understand the angle of why they're enemies at this point. But I guess it looks like they're anticipating more, more seasons to elaborate on that. And I thought it'd be a crazy moment if what they were setting up to be was that the patient zero would be Billy Wesker as opposed to what they're suggesting a tyrant and how that would have affected Wesker as a father and knowing that his daughter was the cause of the outbreak in 2036. That would have been so tragic for him. And I'm wondering how you guys feel about that too. Do you think it would be better or for worse, not only for these characters, but for the, the setting as a whole? And two, it's really interesting that they want to canonize the games for this story because not only does Umbrella achieve their goal, I guess this also suggests that Chris, Jill, and the rest of the uh, the team kind of failed to stop Umbrella. And I'm wondering what your thoughts about that are as well. Talk to you guys soon. That's good. One comment I'd like to make about the show as a whole is the quality of the production itself. The acting I felt on everybody's contribution was wonderful. Lance Reddick is one of my favorite actors. I love the guy. The actress that played Evelyn did a fantastic job. I mean, you you really love to hate that woman. Paula Nunes. Uh, yes, wonderful. All of the performers are wonderful. And technically, I cannot find a chink in the armor of the look of the show. The way it was shot was fantastic. Of course, Kevin Lincoln-Felser did a fantastic fantastic job as VFX supervisor. The only thing that I would critique would be what the showrunner did with it, and that is the story and how all of those things link up and what the initial thrust of this series, why was this series made? Why did they make the choices that they made? It really stands apart. It stands apart from everything else that we know in the Resident Evil universe. Does it have a place in the Resident Evil universe? Sure it does. And it goes back to what Evan Saba said about embrace expansion of your ideas. Open your mind up and do a what if. Take the aspects of this world and this canon and this story and say, what if it was a different situation where there's two daughters? Why not embrace that? We've seen the game makers themselves, Capcom, we've seen them embrace that idea of let's change this up a little bit. Every game that comes out is a little bit different. It begs the question, what is canon and what do you have to do to add to that canon? Is it legitimate to say this show is not canon, but it is now? Do you have any opinions about that? 
I think the starting point would be with Capcom making official statements on that. But then again, they've had individual employees, writers, developers that have kind of muddied the waters by contradicting that. And we had the whole palaver with Peter Fabiano stating that both right. the remakes and the originals of two and three can kind of all coexist in the same universe. I know, I know many among us, including Monique from Resident Evil Database had something to say about that. For me, look, I think this series always never set out to be an adaptation. It clearly stated that it was inspired by the Resident Evil series. Going back to Sean's call, one thing that Evan pointed out about, which I really enjoyed, that this series I think did really, really well, Joe. You know, you talk about adhering to the video game narrative. I think something that they really did draw on and kind of improve upon and develop from the video games was this Orwellian nature of Umbrella and the way that its shadow was always cast over its employees in this show. Mm-hmm. And you really felt that by the joining of the corporate life like office life but then life outside the office looks almost exactly the same we kind of see the sterile corporate housing that the umbrella employees have that make up this town campus the show severance stars john Turturro and christopher walken i don't know if any of you guys have seen it it reminded me of severance when you have the surveillance cameras aren't just at work they're also in the employees homes yeah Definitely. My first thought when they showed them the new the new house, that woman's walking them through, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this house is going to know everything that goes on in it and it will be registered by someone at the company will be monitoring them 24 hours a day because it's Umbrella. But going back on what Sean was mentioning, it's not like our group of heroes failed. This is a new umbrella. This is a revived umbrella. This isn't the same umbrella that went bankrupt years back. This is umbrella brought back up by Evelyn Marcus, who is a descendant of James Marcus, who, if we all start thinking about the canon, got screwed over by Spencer. There's historical precedent for this. A company like Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R, they make aspirin. That company during World War II was the company that made Zyklon B poison that was used to gas Jews in the concentration camps. So that company has a really sinister past, but they changed after World War II and Bayer as a company still exists, but it's a completely different company. A legacy company, a a hundred-year-old company can, like Umbrella, could be torn down and rebuilt in a new image. This is not your father's umbrella. This is a new umbrella. It's got Evelyn Marcus at the head of it, which is just as evil as it used to be, but for different reasons. I think in the previous incarnation of Umbrella, it was much more military, industrial complex type company. Now it seems like they're much more corporate, much more um, about the capitalist side of evil incorporated. They're making a drug that ostensibly helps people be happy, but if you take a certain dosage of it, it turns you into a mindless zombie. She's still dabbling in in the old shady past of Umbrella regardless because she's still pulling back that data from what we know of the series and from Evelyn Marcus herself. How did she get the information? Still have the T-virus. I know she still have one of the Wesker clones. But in theory, a lot of the information that was with Umbrella was destroyed with Raccoon City. I think that's the problem, isn't it, Batgirl? That they're kind of dipping in and out of the canon. And when you do that, you're just creating contradictions. I really enjoyed the fact that Evelyn Marcus is the driving force behind this new Umbrella. They're rebuilding and rebranding by moving away from bioweapons into these consumer drugs, this showpiece antidepressant that they've got. And I really love the fact that that whole weight of expectation and the weight of that responsibility that's on Evelyn's shoulders and how working for umbrella just that weight of expectation and that stress and that anxiety on the people that work for them we see that in the friction between evelyn and wesker 
One thing Sean mentioned, we touched upon it before, was the lack of clarity on who was patient zero. What was the catalyst for the outbreak? And I love that idea, Sean's suggestion, that it should have been Billy. That really implies that she is patient zero because out of the blue, here's a tire and like, okay, what's the point of this? It would have made more sense if it was Billy because that way you know that's the rift that caused the sister's relationship to fall apart. And it would make more sense for Billy to keep on working with Umbrella because maybe they can keep stabilizing her virus. Well, exactly, yeah. But at the same time, they hate her. Yeah. Which they really need to clarify as to how they took her in. And would also kind of act as a driving force behind Billy's motivations and how she's taken a very different path to Jade. It really felt like they were drawing you along to believe that Billy was going to be patient zero. I have to think that they were using that as a device to lengthen the discovery process of their relationship. They want you to think that's because that colors the relationship a certain way for your expectations as to what's going to happen. You understand that that sister is going to get farther and farther away as she descends into the madness of her illness, which has not happened. I kept waiting for that to happen. She's either going to attack her sister or her sister's going to have to kill her. Something like that was going to happen. But what they may be doing is setting up something for the second season. It gave a set of expectations as to what might happen. And because those expectations were kind of torn apart, it's like, oh, let's see where this does end up. What's their relationship going to be? Are they ultimately going to be a dynamic duo against Umbrella? Are they ultimately going to fight their father? Are they protagonists or antagonists? They ended it also and had a bit of a cliffhanger because Billy is irredeemable because of what she did. Yeah. They basically set it up to the possibility of if there would be a season two, it's probably going to end up being Billy versus Jade. That's a good opportunity for them to have some kind of a resolution between the two. It's lovely to see them drift really far apart and for one of them to go down a road that is going to require a lot of redemption. And can that redemption happen between the two of them? I love a good redemption story. I love to see a character that's gone way bad come all the way back to do something good. Basically do the Kylo run. And it gives you a sense of hope. I would like to think that the entire Resident Evil canon, the entire reason for it to exist is to give hope. Even if society collapsed with a zombie apocalypse, there's still hope that something good would rise from the ashes. Okay, and now for our next call-in, and it's from an entire family, Mr. and Mrs. Smiley. And if you listen very carefully, you'll also hear Smiley Jr.'s opinion on the links between the Netflix show and Operation Raccoon City. Over to you, Smiley family. Good day, Crimson Head Podcast. Mr. and Mrs. Smiley here, taking some time out of tending a little baby Smiley to bring you our Resident Evil Netflix reviews. Take it away, Mrs. S. Hey everyone, going in, I really had no idea what to expect. Even with tempered expectations, I still ended up pleasantly surprised by the end of the season. That isn't to say it's without flaws, mainly by the way of a lagging 2036 plot and forgettable side characters, but actors like Lance Reddick as Albert and Paola Nunez as Evelyn more than made up for them. I also greatly enjoyed seeing the different aspects of Wesker's personality emerge in Billy and Jade. Overall, I'd say that the first season was a solid 7, breadsticks out of 10. Fingers crossed for more Olive Garden in Season 2. For the most part, I agree. The most entertaining chapter of the present and future timelines has to be the one with Lance Reddick as Wesker, who owns every scene that he's in. I can say that halfway into the season, the post-apocalyptic timeline starts getting interesting, 
and I can always forgive its slow pace because it introduces a new monster each episode. I knew going in that this show uh, has a history of questionable adaptations when it comes to Netflix, not to mention Resident Evil's own live-action movies haven't fared any better either. But one of the things that I did know going in was that Lance Reddick was either going to make the show entertaining throughout, or at the very least, he would make it suck just a little bit less. And I'm happy to say that he excelled in his performance. Without going into spoilers, not only does he deliver the charm, intelligence, and mystery of his character, but he knows when to take the role seriously and when to ham it up. The story itself surprised me by choosing to acknowledge the plot of the games in the background while it chooses to tell the story of the Wesker Daughters. When people compare the drama and dialogue to shows on the CW, they really aren't joking. It likes to wear the teen angst and pop culture references like a badge of honor. And for some, that's going to be a disappointment. But as somebody like me that grew up on Smallville, I must confess that it really didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. And at the end of the day, it's not as though the games haven't tried to capture that influence on their own characters. I'm looking at you, Moira Burton. So if you enjoy the games, and you can turn off that part of your brain that tries to make the show fit in with that game series, because spoiler alert, it's not, then you might have a fun experience watching those events events unfold. I'd rate it about a 6 or 7 out of 10, and I do welcome a Season 2. Hopefully they'll introduce more game characters and even some new monsters from RE7 and Village. Take it away, Crimson Head Podcast. Great review. That was a great call, and I think if people listen very carefully, they may have heard a cameo from Smiley Jr. Shout out to Smiley Jr. Yes. (laughs) Our youngest listener, shout out to Smiley Mm. Jr. Me and Smiley might not agree when it comes to Operation Raccoon City. He's very passionate about that game. I'm really where Smiley is because, look, I am a traditionalist. I desperately want the narrative, like, scene by scene. But coming to this show with an open mind, and there were aspects of it that I did enjoy. I mean, you mentioned before, Joe, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, you know, that's a show that kind of doesn't take itself too seriously whilst doing horror very well. And I think that's where I think this show missed the mark. You know, totally, it's all over the place. There were aspects that kind of, for me, reminded me of when Walking Dead was at its best and and you see the the human tragedy behind the virus. And and we got that, I think it was episode three, at the end of the escape through the Channel Tunnel. We got that family. I think they were meant to be from Brighton, but they had like northern (laughs) northern accents. But we see, you know, the tragedy behind the child being infected. And I love the fact that the slow pace gave us the time to enjoy that. I didn't let the game in me drag me down and just close my mind to seeing what was on the screen, which there were parts of it I did enjoy. The um, Brady Bunch, Raccoon City 90210, that really did great on me when we got that scene, the skateboard scene, and it was just too much. (laughs) But the elements of the teen relationship and how they dealt with moving to a new town, yeah, it's not exactly what I want to see, but within the context of this show, I was okay with it. I really do hope that there's more Olive Garden scenes with Bert if they do have a second season. Do you really not? Yes. <laughs> I love Bert. <laughs> to Smiley's point, also, Miley and Sky, Lance really was the best part of this series. If you go in with your bias in your brain of the games, he still performed beautifully because for an actor to be able to put three different people with three different personalities in one room and then add a fourth, it takes a lot. 
Although I agree with you, absolutely, it shows Lance's range. I don't want the character that was Bert. And again, it's this tone being all over the place. It was just a step too far. It was so comedic. It took me out of it. It detracted from the tension. What I really enjoyed about Lance's performance was when he was creeping towards the Wesker that we know from the games. And I think we really saw that in that scene in the school. What I really liked about that as well is, you know, we didn't just see Lance starting to become a little bit more sinister and use his position with Umbrella. We get to see the influence of Umbrella. That's school bully situation isn't resolved in terms of you know the headmistress saying what's right and wrong deciding morally what decision to make that decision comes down to the hierarchy that's imposed by umbrella we saw lance really enjoy playing that sinister insidious side of wesker you can see the albert wesker we all know and love peeking through and that this isn't our wesker but he still has elements of our wesker right you guys remember the uh, scene where Evelyn pretty much wants him to torture that guy and pretty much says, let out the old Albert or old Wesker that oh, we know? Yes. That, for me, felt like the Wesker right now pretty much turned his life around after Billy and Jade were born. He wanted to live a normal life and forget the things he had done. He just wanted to turn over a new leaf. And then when he starts torturing, then I thought, wow, they're actually reflecting on how sadistic he was. Yeah. Right. And then we find out the truth about the clone theory, about the clones. And it's like, oh, that's like a slap in the face. If this was the original Wesker, we saw a new leaf of him of if he lived a normal life right. and changed right. his ways. That's a really Just good point. Aspect. When you say, Aaron, do you mean when you say slap in the face, like for us, the viewer, that we actually thought we were seeing character development. But in the end, it turns out that, yeah, it actually wasn't even him in the first place. When she exactly. said the old yeah, I really agree with you there. Absolutely. Because to me, it was like, oh, this is getting interesting. The old <laughs> Wesker, hmm. You're really spot on there because it's almost kind of similar to the way the tension was completely taken out of the situation when we thought that Jade was suddenly astoundingly finding out that her sister that she actually thought was dead was alive. But then when they actually meet, we discover that she knew that she was alive all along. Exactly. Right now we have another fantastic call. We really do. Thank you again for all of your calls. Over to you, Mr. Jag Taggart. Hey, Crimson Hilter Podcast. This is Jag Tagger 93 here to give my thoughts real quick about the Netflix show. I'll be trying to avoid spoilers as much as I can, but the best part of the series really for me as a fan is what it implies for the lore of the games. Uh, for example, seeing a planned and functioning Umbrella City was a real treat for us Survivor fans. Yes, there's a few of us. Uh, but we always wondered what life would have been like for the Umbrella families that lived on Sheena Island. Indeed, I wonder if the school Lillian Lott now had kombucha on tap. Speaking of which, I absolutely love the character of Evelyn and her connection to the games. By far, though, the best character of the entire show is Albert Wesker. Every scene he's in is absolute gold. He's charismatic when he needs to be, but he's always driven by his own goals and he always has a plan, and that really is the character. I also loved where they took the character, actually, and made him tie into the games. I now have some interesting theories and headcanon for the character, such as how the HCF formed and what the soldiers were actually like. Indeed, I know that in the acronym HCF, C stands for capture, but I now think there might be another word that it can stand for. I went into the show thinking that I was going to absolutely hated it. I dreaded what it was going to do to the Resident Evil lore and the characters. However, I'm coming away pleasantly surprised. There's more here for fans to really appreciate and sink their teeth into than one might think. Thanks a lot and have a good one. He's really right. There is a lot there for people to enjoy. These days, I think people are a bit sardonic 
we come to everything with this edge of sarcasm and anger because of what we've been through in the past couple of years. People are just on edge, but there really is a lot of good stuff in this. There are wonderful performances by everyone involved. The technical aspects of it are fantastic. The special effects are fantastic. So yeah, you can denigrate the thing. You can be really down on it. But if you look for the good stuff, there's a lot to be found. That reference between what the Umbrella employee homes would look like, like a, an employee campus on Sheen Island, Oracle Dragon, I, mean, I know you're dying to talk about Survivor. <laughs> he does point out a lot of good things too, because like he said, New Raccoon City does fit with the complex of Survivor, because we actually get to see how people used to live at Lake and Sheena Island and how they were monitored constantly for any moles or traitors. Yeah. Because Umbrella does not tolerate that. We see that in the show, the way that Umbrella are kind of creeping into home life and there's that coming together of work life and outside life. CCTV cameras don't stop right. at the Umbrella facility. Yeah. yeah, just like Sheena Island and Vincent Goldman keeping a very close watch on the Sheena Island residents. I think that's definitely what we were getting with Evelyn Marcus. The most important thing for the environments and in, in the games that we're talking about is that they give you that sense. It looks right, but there's something wrong. Yeah, that you know, kind of black mirror thing. Yeah, it's intangible. It's something you can't put your finger on, but you know there's just some kind of evil lurking in the corners of this place. That's how I felt when I saw the interior of the new homes in the new series. They're also sterile. They look like a set as opposed to a real place that people would live. And mm -hmm. that's appropriate for Umbrella because it's everything is a sham. Everything is a, a front for the nasty stuff that they're doing behind the scenes. So there should be this undefinable sense of tension and just a lurking horror that something bad is going to happen, but you can't put your finger on it. You know that feeling? Yeah. Like they're just kind of one level up into terms of freedoms and the test subjects themselves but they, they're, they're still like the test subjects deep in the umbrella basement facilities uh, absolutely they're, they're still being recorded yeah i thought that was a very interesting point he made that while so many people have found it objectionable for all the wrong reasons that lance riddick is playing albert wesker and they haven't allowed themselves to actually see through that we actually do get to see glimpses traits of albert wesker within the way that lance plays it we see that in the school scene when umbrella's hierarchy the influence of umbrella's hierarchies is really seen and lance plays that card rather than what's morally right yeah i think we do get some teasing glimpses into the insidious albert wesker you know that we all know and love Okay, up next we have the very lovely Silver Serpent. Hello Crimson Head Elder Team, I'm glad to be back for another podcast here. Like any other TV series, there are some ups and downs. In my opinion, the TV series took a risk by creating another post-apocalyptic world setting. I would have wanted a story that would be like a prequel of the first game, but I just bear in mind that this series is its own thing. The good thing about not following the timeline of the games is its unpredictability. So the curiosity to know more is there, but the big if is that if the series would manage to make you want to hold on to it and watch it until the last episode. I personally do not like the teenage family drama. Some scenes are too unbelievable as well because apparently Umbrella's firewall has the same level as the firewall of an illegal streaming website for anime and that their facility has poor security features. I did mention that since it's not based on any games, then it's unpredictable. But the ironic thing is that I've seen and read stories about family that moved to a different location and some kids not liking it so many times. The creatures looked incredible. The Chainsaw Man scene could have been written better, though. 
I really love Evelyn's character. Each episode slowly sculpts her into this deranged, greedy person. Ever so slowly, as things start to unravel, you get to see all the wicked things she has done for her family and to her family. Lance Reddick's portrayal of Wesker was amazing. One moment you have this serious dad who is torn between prioritizing work or family. Then the next you have this happy-go-lucky uncle or this mysterious violent version of Wesker. I do understand why some people like it and why some don't. We shouldn't invalidate people's insights just because it's different from ours. It's average for me. It has interesting characters. If they're going to push through with another season, hopefully it would be better. Silver Serpent wouldn't have heard. I, I laughed out loud at her comparison of Umbrella's facility security. Um, Illegal uh, anime website. <laughs> yeah, very funny. And I've got to say, though, everyone's pointed out university. We, we've all really liked Paolo Nunes' portrayal of Evelyn Marcus. But I really liked Silver Serpent's breakdown of the character, the way she talks about. We see the character opens up to us as she becomes almost more deranged, as the pressure is kind of ratcheted up. Then we see how that that ripples out and starts to affect her home life, her family life, you know, relationship with her wife and her son. The huge pressure that she then has to, in turn, put upon Albert Wesker. I get the impression there's a very shady level above Evelyn, putting her under huge pressure as well. I loved that breakdown of, of the Evelyn character that Silver Serpent went through. Yeah, really nice. She really poked the two major diesel rig-sized plot holes in the story. No one's really mentioned the fact that the security at the facility is so lax yes. that they can get away with so much before anybody shows up. It goes back to your point before, Joe, of poor storytelling, because again, I referenced as an example Westworld. We've got exactly the same thing in recent episodes of season four of Westworld, where the security is so appalling. We're actually thinking as part of the narrative, is it a plot point where the antagonist is allowing the protagonist to get away? We've got that between Billy and Jade. You know, Darth Vader, let them escape so we can track them. It's just poor storytelling. Because it takes you out of the film. You're sitting there and you're thinking, instead of being engrossed in the scene, you're thinking to yourself, where are the security guards? This is a yes. super high level security level four facility. Where are the guards? Why isn't there a front desk when you walk into the place? Why isn't there a guard at the door? There should have been a guard gate that they had to get through to get to the building. And the fact You'd that think, these two 14 year old girls in the story were able to break in. Not only break in, but remain inside the building doing stuff without anyone showing up. You think that there would be a moat with a shark in it. In <laughs> Neptune. You know what I'm saying? Freaking sharks with freaking laser beams. But you joke, Joe, but I think that would be less ridiculous than the <laughs> complete lack of security that Silver Serpent so eloquently compares to the, the firewall for an illegal anime website. Talking of anime, Lady Akumu. Hi there, this is Akumu. So my thoughts on the new Resident Evil show. I've only watched up through episode 4. I feel like it's a flawed show, but also enjoyable and that it has a lot of heart. I really like Billy and Jade so far, especially Billy. And I'm looking forward to what happens in the remaining four episodes. But so far, I've enjoyed the direction, the cinematography, the acting, the music. It feels maybe not what I would produce as a Resident Evil show, but it's something that's enjoyable and something that I feel invested in. Thanks. Bye. 
The thing I really like about Lady Akumi's call is that she readily says the show's completely flawed, which I utterly agree with, but doesn't let that detract her. It doesn't cloud her from the fact that there are good things about the show. And she mentions them. And I completely agree with the things that she mentions that are highlights. The cinematography, set designs, lighting. Technically, the thing is fine. There's nothing wrong with this as a production. The only thing that's flawed in this show is the story. That's a very frustrating thing because I see that a lot lately. I guess schools are turning out good filmmakers because the technology has been there. We've got people who are technically proficient, but what we're not creating in our society are good storytellers. There's not enough appreciation for the arts. There's not enough appreciation for intellectualism. There's not enough appreciation for the basics of education, let alone taking people to a place where they can create high levels of art and story. For the most part, I see a lot of shows that are technically slick as hell. They look fantastic, but the stories are garbage. Yeah, I completely agree. That's been exemplified, I think, in a show that I really love, Westworld. It looks stunning. It looks beautiful. But over the seasons, the storytelling has been getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And it also goes down to no one really wants to pick up a book and read it. they rather just go to the movies and watch it. Thank you. No one wants to go see a play. I think that's a very good point and speaks to the fact that the skeleton, the backbone you need is a competent script. And then as we've seen with this show, without that, you can dress it up. You can make it look visually stunning. You can get a fantastic cast. But not only is it poor, it's frustrating in its failures because they had the budget, they had the cast. That's also the same thing that happened with Welcome to Raccoon City. Their script lacked and that's where everything started falling off the wayside. It ends up being either a person trying to adapt something that they're not comfortable with or them not being able to project something original that has to do with the source material. Yeah. You know, I think that that touches on why the special effects were so good, because Kevin Lingenfelser is so deeply into, deeply connected to the lore. He knew exactly what he wanted to see that would satisfy him as a filmmaker in regards to the canon of the Resident Evil universe. He is uh, someone who is absolutely a part of that. He's played every game. He's studied them. He knows the lore. He knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. He knows what the community likes and doesn't like. So he was able to do his job with all of that basis of understanding of the source material. So that right there is an addition to, alongside his technical skills, that allowed him to really knock it out of the park with the special effects on the show. I love the caterpillar. <laughs> I don't know why, just a random thought. Can you imagine it as the butterfly form? <laughs> well, look, it's Mothra. Where's <laughs> Godzilla? I would never say this unless there was an ocean separating me from Batgirl right now. There is a little tiny, tiny bit of Code Veronica that I don't enjoy Batgirl. You know what I'm talking about. In and out, in and bucking out and on my back and then I go out and then I'm poisoned and I go back in to get the blue herb and then it- I hate the moths. I love the moths. They are adorable. You can make them into little pets. The last (laughs) run that I did on stream of Code Veronica was the only time I didn't get poisoned, and I was shocked. Yeah, it's considered a death tunnel. Okay, now we're going to take a trip to one of my favourite parts of the world, over to the Emerald Isle, and we are joined by Ian from the RGB Gaming Podcast. Ian here from the RGB Gaming Podcast, and I am here to give you a very short audio review for the Crimson Head Podcast for Resident Evil on Netflix. 
I am probably one of the very few people that actually really enjoyed the show. I thought Lance Riddick was absolutely amazing as Albert Wesker. And although it is getting slated by the critics and getting slated by Rotten Tomatoes, I actually have to admit I really, really enjoyed it. I've actually watched this twice now, so I've been through the entire series twice and I love spotting Easter eggs and no spoilers, but there are some great ones to be found. So I absolutely love the alternative narratives here. I love the multi-strand narrative. I thought Jade and Billy Wesker were absolutely amazing. Adult actresses were absolutely amazing as well. Am I a hardcore Resident Evil fan? Yes, I am. But I wasn't disappointed. It was great to see Lisa Trevor's in there. It was great to see the old school Wesker. It was great to see the liquors. And of course, the zombies were pretty good. Okay, it's not for the purist. Everyone's going to complain about it because it's not the same as the games but come on are we ever going to get that in a tv or a film i think it's done justice for the franchise taken in a different direction it's diverse it's full of equality and as a fellow irishman baxter of course is my favorite character i for one hope that a new series comes out on netflix and i will be flying the flag for the resident evil series Wow. Well, i got to say, I mean, it's 12 o'clock here for me. It's a little earlier for you guys. It's midnight here. I needed that enthusiasm to put me up at this time. I really wanted to love Baxter. My son's mother's from the Emerald Isle. So, you know, we're, we're, all, huge, <laughs> we're all huge fans of Ireland in this household. So I really <laughs> wanted to love Baxter. The problem for me, I'm interested in what you guys think about this. A personification of the fact this show its tone is all over the place that you get this bumbling Benny Hill character that stumbles down the stairs and he then suddenly turns into John Wick and then you get that scene <laughs> rather than like an action scene set to music I mean it just reminded me of when Strictly Come Dancing you guys call it Dancing with the Stars when they do their Halloween special it was like a dance routine that they just stuck a couple of guns in his hands yeah well, <laughs> Well, apart from him being named after one of my characters from RSS, he was an interesting <laughs> character because he's like, hey, I'm a businessman, but I'm going to kill you anyway. Because <laughs> he had that trope about him of being like, I am the bad guy. But at the same time, he had the comedian effect about him. So it would like light up the mood and stuff. I don't know if it's postmodernist, but these kind of references, you're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse and he's joking about SpongeBob. Were you OK with that sort of stuff? I kind of got sick and tired of all the um, product placements. Why did they reference so many product placements in this thing? And the fact that he mentioned SpongeBob, I was like, oh, good grief, why? That's not really needed. (laughs) In my mind, this takes place in a different universe. And I don't think SpongeBob exists in my concept of what is... And certain websites as well. (laughs) The world of Resident Evil does not cross over into this world for me. None of the games have references to products that exist. I mean, every time you see a a soda can in Resident Evil, it's some brand that they made up. So why would there be... Burger Kong. I'm going to mention Burger Kong. Oh, sorry, sorry, Nat. (laughs) You really want a Burger Kong now, don't you, Nat? (laughs) Burger Kong? What's that? In RE3. It's RE3. Yeah, go on, Nat. I'll let Nat say it. (laughs) I've killed Nat. The texture, like, you know, all the rubbish and the stuff and the litter on the streets of Raccoon City in RE3, you've got, like, um advert for the fast food joint, which is called Burger Kong. Ah, <laughs> right. So, you know, I would wish that they would leave it in its own universe. It's a unique universe. It does not cross over into anything that we know in our real lives. 
And now for our last call, and we'll be incorporating with this our final thoughts on the show and giving our scores out of 10. So to accompany us with that, we've got a call from Stevie B. Hey, Crimson Head Elder family, this is Stevie B. I actually really enjoyed the series. I thought it was really well done. I thought the cinematography was pretty good. The attention to detail that they put on the B.O.W.s that are featured in the show were really good. And I actually uh, found the dichotomy between the future and the present storytelling at times was a bit weirdly cut, but most of the time I thought it was pretty on point. We got off to a little bit of a slow start, spent a lot of time in the high school and things like that. A lot of it is kind of needed for plot building, but I really think that the show kind of takes off in the second half. That's where the future sequences start showing a lot more of the B.O.W.s other than just the Zeros. Of course, the revelation of what's going on with Wesker was, it was hard for me to kind of comprehend. I was like, what exactly is going on here? I thought it was kind of a big risk. That sort of paid off. I kind of sat back and thought about it. I was like, what? Wesker do this? And it makes a lot of sense. The only person that Wesker would trust the most with his research is himself. And seeing Lance Reddick in the classic Wesker outfit, I just I just really uh, am happy that they include those references. Even down to the dog whistle and the clip and the safe when Billy and Jade are essentially doing what we all do in, in most Resident Evil games. The fact that they had puzzles to figure out in the house. As far as Billy and Jade Wesker go as characters, I think that they had really good character development throughout the series and the whole time you're questioning is how do we get from this loving sister relationship to being on opposite ends of this uh, apocalyptic war watching their relationship change as the plot develops more or so mainly in the last episode i enjoyed its ties to the series i i wish we could have got a little bit more of the original characters that we all know and love the biggest negative thing i have to say about it, this is going to seem strange but i felt like the liquors were kind of op maybe their evolved liquors. Oh, also, Umbrella not having very much physical security at their high-tech facility made me question a little bit, but I really enjoyed the show, and I'm looking forward to season two. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to our thoughts and keep up the great work. You guys have such an amazing podcast. Uh, Yeah, I love you guys. It makes it all worthwhile when we hear comments like that. I really appreciate that, Stevie, being a great call. And I'm just going to very quickly agree and disagree with a couple of things. I thought the liquors, they may have been a bit OP, but I really enjoyed that. The way they were just plucking people out of, of the ground into the sky, you know, kind of almost like alien-esque, putting victims up from dark tunnels up through the vents. I really actually really like the fact that they did take a slow pace with those those earlier episodes so that we kind of built up empathy. We got to learn about these characters so that when we see their demise, we th- see things before them. We, You know, they're not just kind of like a Star Trek red shirt. We actually have a lot of empathy for them. Ellie's descent after finding out she's infected kind of reminded me of the Keeper's Diary. Yeah, and seeing also not just seeing the like the emotional and the physical deterioration, but also mental. Yeah, exactly. And actually, but also seeing the paranoia, paranoid and neurotic that things were happening that actually weren't. Yeah, she was seeing the dog constantly and hearing it and when it wasn't even there and to the point where she actually thought people were going to hurt her. It's wonderful to see their relationship develop, the character development that happens over the course of episodes. Although we got that development, I enjoyed that. It wasn't reconciled. We didn't get to see how and why they split up. Stevie B references the time jumps. I really enjoy that and the puzzle box investigative element that you get in terms of how do the two timelines join. Although the two timelines are drawn together, we don't actually get to see the catalyst. It's not clearly identified. It didn't drain the momentum for me, but you know, that's in the editing. What did you guys think? 
I personally find that back and forth between timelines very jarring. I'm not a big fan of it. I'm not a big fan of that editing style or that storytelling style. The jumping of the timeline stuff, it all depends on the scene, because if there's like a full-on action scene in the future, and then we suddenly jump back to the past to a very calm or stupid scene, it doesn't make any sense at all, because how is that linked to what's going on right now? Did you just say a calm or a stupid? <laughs> Did you say or a stupid scene? <laughs> they could have played those scenes out better when there's calm moments in the future instead of inserting them where we're like, oh, something's going to happen. Uh. Right. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's disjointing. Yeah. Right. Final thoughts. Six out of ten for me, I'm going above the fours, is in terms of the special effects. But also, they touched on this and we really got this. And it's a shame that a lot of people turned off before we got to these moments where you get these fantastic narrative playouts of individual families and the individual tragedies that the virus, that the outbreak is bringing to them and the personal tragedies that unfold. We got that in a fantastic location, you know, the Channel Tunnel. I thought that was a brilliant set. The lighting was wonderful during those moments, set the mood, set the tone. There were moments of Lance Reddick's performance that is actually how I'd like to see an Albert Wesker with far more dimension to kind of see the pressures, the internal pressures that Wesker was put on. You know, he didn't choose this life as a Wesker child, but yeah, his relationship with Evelyn Marcus was fantastic. And obviously the things that I found just preposterous and I don't want to play a part and to be kind of, you know, Brady Bunch, didn't find it appropriate. These odd, I don't know if it's postmodernism, these references to SpongeBob in the heat of the moment. I mean, if that's going to be a narrative point that Evelyn Marcus is now under the control control of Billy. Perhaps it was a more intelligent, immersive way to have put that point across. A nod to her grandfather, James Marcus, who likes to dress up in robes and, and sing opera. Six out of ten for me. I enjoyed it because I put my Resident Evil fan cap off, and I just enjoyed it as a series in itself. I do give it the same score, a six out of ten. The creature designs were basically my favorite thing. They gave me the Spider-Man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go in there. It's a big spider. It'll bite you. <laughs> I need serum. I saw some somewhere in the mansion. I kind of sound like Shaggy. <laughs> I, need, I need serum, Scoob. Oh, you're always moaning, Richard. Stop complaining. This is why I let you die all the time. Going out to dinner with Richard, it's like, oh, I, I don't see anything on the menu I like. I'll just fucking order something, Richard. You do this every time we go out. <laughs> oh, loving this Richard shade. I was giving Richard so much shade in your honor last night on the stream, Joe. Nice. It's like having Richard and Chris fighting each other. <laughs> um, all right, Oracle, let's go into your final thoughts and marks out of 10. Uh, let's see, probably 6 out of 10 too. I did enjoy the show, but the uh, childhood teenage drama stuff, at some points, like I said, it just felt not really needed. Yeah. I did enjoy it. The plot twist with Wesker, and I honestly did think that they were really implying with the RE5 Wesker about how he has to take the antibiotics to help him fight off his own virus so it doesn't kill him or yeah. poison him. I really thought they were going with that, too. Later we find out that it's not. <laughs> it was a bit disappointing to me, because I was like, holy crap, they actually paid attention yeah, I'm going to go with yeah. 6 out of 10 for all of the previously mentioned reasons. Uh, you know, it's technically fantastic, and the performances I felt were very solid. The only criticisms that I have go to the story and the usage of Resident Evil. I do feel that they hijacked the story from Resident... I mean, they took something from the Resident Evil universe and made something new out of it, and at the same time sort of paid homage to the original source material, but in a way that utilized it and put it there for the fans, but in a way that was not universally accepted. 
you compare that with Sean LeBert's Resident Evil Arclay short film, which took none of the direct Resident Evil plot it's points. But don't you agree? It feels so much more Resident Evil than a show that's got a character called Albert Wesker and a company called Umbrella and a T-Virus. You can't just grab those disparate parts and put them together and call it Resident Evil. It doesn't work. Intrinsically, there's a vibe to a real Resident Evil project Yes, that I think was missing from this. And I think that it has a lot to do with that CW teenage angst so much uh, to do with it yes yes really is not the right angle for a resident evil project not that it couldn't be you could do that right there could be some side characters that are added to the resident evil universe but i don't think that it was done the way that i would have done it and that's the response that we've gotten from most of the call-ins and thank you very much for your participation i think that that made this really special this has been a really great experience they said the world would end in 2036. But they were wrong. The world ended a long time ago. Now, we are delighted to welcome our special guests into the Crimson Head Mansion. With a prestigious list of credits to his name, including Pirates of the Caribbean, iRobot, Armageddon, Preacher, and Visual Effects Supervisor for the new Resident Evil series on Netflix, we're privileged to be joined by Kevin Lingenfelser. Kevin, welcome to the Crimson Head Podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. And helping your Crimson Head team with Kevin's questions, we are delighted to welcome back to our mansion the writer and director of the short film Dave, also known as Resident Evil Arclay, Sean LeBaire. Sean, welcome back. Hey guys, thanks for having me again. Such a delight. We love having you, Sean. Kevin, thank you once again for joining us. You have a list of credits uh, as long as my leg, and my legs are long. Let me ask you this. How familiar were you with the individual Resident Evil games and how much research and reference of game installments and BOWs, how much of that uh, research went into the design of the monsters and visual effects? To answer the first part of the question regarding my experience with the games, yeah, I've played all the mainline story games when I first got a PlayStation um, in, what was it, 95, and Resident Evil came out in 96. Played it straight away and then followed it, of course, with two, three, four on the GameCube. Right. Six was the one I, I put pause on because I just wasn't in, enjoying it as much. Mm -hmm. but recently, before I left for South Africa to do the show last year, I uh, finished it with my daughter. We kind of co-opted it and finished it. And then, uh, of course, I had already done Resident Evil 7. And while I was in South Africa, I played Resident Evil Village or 8. And I've seen all the Anderson films. I've watched all the CGI movies. Uh, I've gone to the theater and actually seen the Anderson films. So, you know, and I, I enjoyed them for what they were, you know. My goal, when I was first asked to come on or when I when I heard Netflix was doing the show, I hadn't heard anything. I didn't know any names had been attached or nothing. I went in just and talked to the episodic manager and uh, talked to him and just expressed my interest in doing it. So I went inside unseen, didn't see any scripts or anything. So I was always approaching, particularly in regards to the creatures, as pretty much trying to bring to the screen the best version of them as possible. You know, do better than the movies, be authentic, and try to ground them to some degree. You have ones that are a little easier than others to do that, the dog and, and the rat. The caterpillar... And the croc, you know, everybody knows what those two things look like, but those things went through massive growth spurts. So still, the goal was to ground them. So that was my 
mission from the get-go. So when I was finally when I was hired on, I was the second person pretty much hired on. It was me and production designer James Foster. And then I got the scripts and then I broke them down and I saw I finally saw what they were attempting with this iteration of Resident Evil and what they wanted to accomplish with the series. But once again, the thing that was always on my mind and I was always laser focused on was just making sure the creatures looked the best that they could look. I, I think it's absolutely amazing that you have that deep of an understanding of the games and the and the movies. Um, I, I love the fact that you're that you before this thing happened that you were so um, immersed in the in the the canon of of Resident Evil. I mean that's amazing. That shows in the detail that you brought to this uh, show. I pursue projects that interest me, so I'm not satisfied just letting a show come in and do it. I mean, I've been victim of that when I worked facility side. It's a little hard to control it, but often what I try, I, I pursue certain things. Godzilla, the, the Roland Emmerich thing was one that I, I did pursue. Mm-hmm. And I, didn't, I stopped pursuing it after a certain point because I wasn't crazy about the direction they were going in. Another good example of one I pursued pretty hard was Preacher. I'm seeing similarities here between Preacher and Resident Evil and in how they were adapted or whatever you want to refer to it as. Early on, I, I kind of I kind of knew we were going to have trouble selling this to the hardcore fans because I was coming at it from a hardcore fan. I was just interested in really making these creatures look as good as they could because I was never satisfied with the creatures that I was seeing on the screen. That's not, I'm not trying to present it as hubris or ego. It's just, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. I stocked the the vendor list for the visual effects appropriately, you know, to do the creature work. You know, I found everybody's strengths and weaknesses and went with that. That's how I got the results that I did. We have individual questions that are going to uh, ask you, Kevin, about the individual BOWs and the creatures. Uh, I just want to quickly say, overall, I, I thought the creatures looked absolutely fantastic that you are a fan and it is it runs through all the designs you know the liquors i don't want to go into too much detail because we've got questions that cover this but they, they, they looked wonderful and i really did think that these were the best representations of some of these creatures that we've seen one of the silver linings of all this has been that even with a lot of the negative reviews it's usually peppered with a but the creatures look great <laughs> obviously i want the, i wanted the show to succeed i have no control over that either because you know the powers that be you know they were already dabbling with scripts for season two and whatnot so it'll be interesting to see wow. what happens netflix gives it like a 28 day window so now we're less than that now we're about you know 21 or 20 days less before they make that decision wow it's that it's that fast and it could be even faster. Yeah, they have certain viewer numbers that a show has to hit in order to get a season two order. Like if it comes out of the gate strong, like if you get like 200, I think it's like 200 million views in the first week, boom, it's pretty much a done deal, second season. I don't truly understand Netflix algorithms. There is a set number that has to be hit with reference to a show that you mentioned, Preacher, and thinking about some of the criticisms perhaps of scenes in the last two episodes that took on a more comedic element, Preacher and another show that I watched, The Boys, they don't take themselves too seriously. There are some very serious, shocking moments, fantastic acting, great scripts, moments of pathos, but at the same time, don't take themselves seriously, almost break the fourth wall on occasions. You know, you can have, for example, yeah. The Boys, they can suddenly break into a dance routine. Interestingly, I wonder how you felt those elements could be in, and should be used within a Resident Evil series. 
That's a good question. And I have to give credit where credit is due. As far as adaptation goes, I'm a huge Garth Ennis fan, starting with Preacher. And then, of course, I went to The Boy. So I was aware of both properties before they were turned into episodic series. One of my great honors was meeting both Garth and Steve Dillon while doing the pilot episode of Preacher before, rest in peace, Steve Dillon passed away. Wow. Yeah. And Garth is just... He's just an awesome guy. And I wanted to do The Boys, honestly, to tell you the truth, but I was doing season three of Preacher. So I did the first three of Preacher, and then season four shifted, for money reasons, Sony shifted to Australia. I was grateful for that because I was not crazy about how the fourth season looked or went at all. I was kind of happy with the way season three had more of the comic book elements in it. You had the Santa Killers going to hell. You had all that stuff. So I was very proud of that stuff. But um, getting back to the boys real quick, it's weird how this show was approached because it's it's not what I consider an adaptation by any means. I think it's more of a... It's funny because I saw it on the Netflix banner when I loaded up Netflix. They, they actually used the word inspired by the video games. That is it. It's not an adaptation. It never was. It is inspired. But as far as adaptation goes, The Boys is how you do it. They're not doing a frame for frame. Right. Through the source material. Yes. And I think they're one-upping it in a lot of ways. Most of that credit goes to Eric Kripke, the showrunner. I keep reading people wanting Anthony Starr for Wesker, but I think that's too on the nose. Yeah. And I think he could elevate it, though, because for me, in the games, and especially in the movies, he was always portrayed as kind of like a one-note buffoon. And I think most people are agreeing, at least, that, you know, Lance has done something truly unique and interesting with the character. Amazing actor. Yeah. One of the best things about the show, if you are beholden to can- Resident Evil canon, then he's nothing like any of the Weskers we've seen before. But yeah. then again, attitude-wise, when he did show up in the black trench coat and, and the sunglasses and everything, he did have Wesker's yeah. attitude. Yeah. But mm-hmm. once he set foot into that lab and you had all the other clones around him, you knew each character had a different persona. And it takes such a skill yeah. for oh, someone yeah. to be able to do something like that. People yeah. also have to see that he's doing that by himself. Yes. He's not working off of anyone else. He's working by himself. And for him to be able to portray different characters in different areas, it takes a lot. Honestly, he was one of my favorite things of the series. Yeah, because he'd never done motion control before. And that's how that sequence was. Quite a few of the shots were achieved that way. The intro shot of Wesker coming down the stairs and taking the glasses off and kind of wiping them clean and then stepping forward to each desk. That was a motion control camera move. So that was a repeated move that he had to do five times. What then happens is in the case of Lance, you know, since he's playing OG Wesker, as he was called, then he's playing Albert, then he's playing Albie, and then he's playing Bert. Mm -hmm. He has to get in wardrobe and basically run the same move over and over again. And the camera follows repeatedly every time and it's a perfect sync and what we kind of do to help us with that is uh at the start of each take there's this thing called a bloop light and it's just a little blue light that kind of pops off and what that does is it allows editorial it's a sync point yes that's the sync point so then all the other subsequent layers can be layered in order properly and in sync so when dialogue is occurring it's matching eye lines and things like that we had stand-ins for lance in terms of eye line and stuff like and stuff like that but lance is kind of like um he's old school but he kind of wanted it 
he felt a little more freer just doing it without that. Wow. Yeah, he wanted it that way because, like I said, he'd never done it before. So, and he's the dude. He's he's a nerd. You know, he's a total nerd geek at heart, man. You know, he was he was talking to me about preacher, and he was talking to me about you know, obviously, look at what he's done. You know what I mean? Sure. So yeah, he was great to work with, and he was always eager to learn. But go, I think you've got the next question. Yeah. The zombie genre has seen many versions of the humanoid stalker. What were the essential elements that went into the design and the direction of the infected zeros? Yeah, so the zeros, the infected, they were never referred to as undead or zombie. There was only one time the word zombie was used in the whole series. It was when Simon referred to his drugged mom as a zombie. Yeah, it's interesting. What Andrew Dabb, the showrunner, and Mary Leah Sutton, the other EP, were trying to do were, were trying to make it more about infection and that these infected people were more about beating and breeding. So by biting and so forth, you know, the infection spreads, they grow. That's why there were so many of them. And then most of them are what they called the zero strain, the biters. And as far as the look, so went down the road of like, we looked at for the creatures and for the infected, we, we looked at real world reference things like bed sores, uh, homeless people, sunburn, pustules were a big thing that played into the design. You'll look at some of the zeros and you'll see they have the pustules, tumescent kind of qualities, you know, those were the big things. So it wasn't, we didn't do any of the, the walking dead type of thing where mm -hmm. you have like this emaciated person and then you apply green screen fabric to areas so that you can punch holes through them. We didn't really do any of that. We did blow off plenty of heads and stuff like that. The first director, she got to kind of set some of the, the groundwork and the looks and stuff like that. And she even tried to establish a certain way they moved. She was looking at a lot of African dance and things like that. You'll see several of them in the first episode and even up to the last episode where a lot of times they'll keep their arms down by their bodies as they run or what have you. That was kind of like a deliberate thing that she had put into this. And we, we carried over that infected quality, like all the creatures have that pustule state. So the caterpillar has it, the rat had it, the Cerberus had it. It's just to show a consistency in the T-virus and what it can do so that there was some kind of like through line or thread of like, what is a commonality in the infection human versus animal? And then we came up with the bifurcated, you know, like the spider, it's probably hard to see, but it actually has a split head. Uh, and we did a split tail on the croc and things like that. It was easier with, with the BOWs. The liquor was probably the only one I didn't really put it into because the liquor being more of a flayed skin kind of. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always a debate, isn't it, whether you're zombies or, in, you know, in this case, the infected, whether they run or they, they shamble. I've always found it a little jarring. It takes you out of the immersion when you have your protagonists running from a horde of zombies that, that although they're shambling very slowly, I think, you know, The Walking Dead in the past, maybe in, in, in the first earlier seasons, did it quite well in trying to inject certain story elements to enable the zombies, you know, to catch up. I saw it for the first time in 28, was it 28 days later, where the zombies, the infected, actually run at you. And I, I think it works fantastically well in this series and obviously really really amps up the tension yes I, yeah. I agree the only time the slow methodical walk works is with michael myers if you were to see him run in a movie i think you'd burst out laughing you know what I mean? <laughs> because you're so used to him doing what he does you know he's this unstoppable force 
when you have 25, 50, 100 zeros and they're just mindlessly shambling, that's why I was impressed with 28 Days. Love that movie. Yeah, and I like what they did with that. And it ratcheted the fear level to, you know, to like a thousand. What it also did, now you've got these two distinct camps of like people that like the shamblers and people that like the runners. So I heard the criticisms about our zombies being too, too mobile compared to the zombies in the game. I think that fresh zombies would be fast. They would slow down and become yes. these wretched things. Unless you would argue that it was some sort of evolutionary process for the right. virus where they get they mutate and you know adapt to their setting so that they start running. But you have zombies, classically, they, they fall apart. So they start wondering, how does that work? To spend that disbelief, you know? And that's the kind of thing that you need to establish at the beginning of your story. If you don't follow that rule throughout the entire series, you're going to have people get upset with you. Well, I yeah. think they do that, don't they, well? And I'm, I'm just one of many criticisms. I've seen people criticize the behavior of the zombies based on the fact they can see. Now, as we know, Jade clearly states at the beginning, and I really like this bit, that she says their corneas are the first to go. And you can actually see certain behavioral traits in the zeros that they hunt on smell, not on sight. And I have seen various criticisms that actually fail to take note of the fact that, no, they're not hunting on it with sight. They're, they're you know, their corneas gone. And I like that introduction into the context that, you know, because that's never dealt with in The Walking Dead. 11, 12 seasons on, and the zombies haven't rotted yet. <laughs> their eyes go first. After about two or three years, the cornea is fried. Their hearing goes next, but their sense of smell it keeps getting better. And in the summer, people stink. Smart. Fucking dead folks, huh? They're not dead. The T-virus doesn't kill people. It rewires their brains. Your groupies outside? They're zero strain. Carriers. All they want to do is eat and spread the virus. We were introduced to Mother Zero, also called by the fans as the Screamer, a wonderfully repulsive-looking infected, able to conduct the movement of her horde with the screams like Lisa Trevor that inspired this, probably. (laughs) (laughs) What effects and techniques were used to bring this monstrosity to life, and how much fake blood did you have to use? (laughs) I don't know how many gallons Mickey and his team went through, but... (laughs) It was a lot, and it, a lot of it too was your classic kind of like the, you know they would wire uh, tubes up, and they also created kind of like special effects worked with makeup effects. Adrian and his Creation Studios team kind of created this kind of false shoulder that at one point the chainsaw gets embedded on her shoulder and it stays there. That was practical element that was attached to her. We just went in and kind of cleaned up the edges and made it look more integrated into into her clothing and into her skin. We added the blood and, and so forth along with the tubes because they would spray and then it was just one of those things where it was like, no, we want more, we want more. <laughs> more blood. Yeah. Most of the headshots, I think, all the headshots actually were done by us. Who gets to clean all that up? <laughs> Did they, like, inspire her from the Resident Evil 6 Screamer? Not that I recall. I don't recall anything written in the script, the makeup and prosthetics for her. I wasn't as involved until we got to that whole pheromone breath thing. So generally, you know, I have enough on my plate that I'm just paying attention to what I need to do. So I don't remember anyone explicitly bringing up any kind of Resident Evil 6 reference for her. A lot of fans actually point that out, that she has like a reference to the Resident Evil 6 screamer because he uses his screams to direct the horde of zombies into attacking people. I'll ask Andrew outright, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. So I'll just ask him. Yeah, that's a great observation, Oracle. Based on that, you're absolutely right. I'm trying to remember that moment, too. 
So like I said, I played that one again before I played eight, just to finish it finally. <laughs> the screen that you hear in the show is her actual screen. So on set, it was even more powerful. The way it was written is they refer to her as Mama Zero or Queen Zero. I believe the lead Brotherhood character refers to her as Queen Zero. The idea is she had this gland, she had developed this gland that secreted this pheromone that when she screamed in exhalation, kind of went out and allowed her to manipulate or control the zeros. This was something else that we went through, oh my God, they wanted to actually see particulate in the air. There is one shot, if you look closely, it's a shot when she screams for the second time, it's got a shake on it. We actually didn't do that. They actually shook that in camera. Wow. Yeah, they actually did. We did not do that. Most of the other shake that was done, that was definitely us because I just like to have the control of it. Sure. If you look close enough, you'll see just the tiniest of of like a greenish kind of mist with a little bit of particulate. I didn't want it to film my work back in the day. I, oh my God, this takes me back to like 93. Um, and it was about an outbreak. It was called Outbreak. Someone sneezes in a movie theater and they mm. this thing where you see the Ebola particulate floating through the air and you yeah. see people were laughing at whatever was on the screen and they're infected. So we went back and forth on this. Andrew hated it, wanted nothing to do with it. I think Constantine was pushing it at the time and maybe even Netflix. So we just went with the one shot. At one point, it was like four shots that I was having this company, Mr. Wolf, do for me. Luckily, like I said, we only ended up with the one, thankfully. But that's the idea of her, is that she's kind of like this control zero. Something Jade been looking for the whole time. They show no sign of intelligence. They show no sign of a hierarchy or a leader. The closest thing they had is the main zero that tackles her, who was dubbed, this is no joke, it was scripted as this, he was dubbed Dickface. <laughs> his initial makeup was this kind of, if you look at him, he's actually, I think I have him as my avatar on my Twitter. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I wondered what that was. <laughs> his real first name is Richard, you know. Yeah, well, close. His, his real name is Rion. Uh, so he was a little bit different. And he was kind of like this kind of de facto leader for that group. Yeah, Andrew just built in this concept of like, okay, let's show that they're not necessarily intelligence. Well, maybe there was because she definitely had a certain level above the normal zero. That was another fun sequence to do was the whole chainsaw bit because that was a good com that was a good combination of practical with visual effects. You know, we had to spin the blade and then we also augmented blood as well with the practical blood. So we just had to match the color and stuff like that. But there were a couple of shots too where Andrew's like, Oh, we gotta get more blood on our face. Okay. Wow. Right, we can do it and Mr. X did it. That was one of the criticisms of the Resident Evil film, Welcome to Raccoon City, that there's actually very little gore, very little blood in that. Yeah, that is a criticism. But the thing I was struck by was like, you had one dog and you had one liquor. Just interesting choices in that regard. I mean, yes, the liquor got a fight with Lisa Trevor, which was dynamically interesting. One dog was kind of like, really? You're just going to do one? Once again, though, it gets back to that whole thing. Like One dog, but you got to understand, this one dog's a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. uh, we won't be monetizing this on youtube now no we, we don't anyway joe we, don't. we could we could always had in richard screaming or chris screaming as our bleepers <laughs> <laughs> I 
battles with giant worms are iconic enemy encounters in the series from resident evil 3's gravedigger to code veronica's gulp worm how much inspiration was taken from these for the giant caterpillar and can you give us a personal insight into its design and production the giant caterpillar i've kind of just run with it online because most people do end up referring to our our boy as gravedigger <laughs> if not it wasn't written that way. I tried to imbue certain qualities of Gravedigger into it, but the actual caterpillar itself is based on an actual real-world species of caterpillar called Bromea hersey, and it looks like that. It's got these kind of very green and red, and it's got the thorny protrusions, pointed protrusions on it. So that's what we based our boy off of. There was another variation where it was orange and black, you know, so it was this weird kind of like you either had the Christmas one or you had the Halloween one, but we settled on that kind of pastel green and pastel red for our boy. And then we added, once again, this was done by Rodeo Effects. That was one of the more challenging ones because that was one of the ones, interestingly enough, that the powers that be, they wanted to cut it completely. So when we were doing Graciated, Constantine in particular was like, oh my God, this isn't working. It looks like a turd. Graciated is basically, it's a non-textured version of a model. So basically we have the caterpillars is modeled and it's once again it was based off of an actual real world caterpillar obviously scaled up everything is created and modeled at that level and before it goes into texturing before it basically essentially gets a digital paint over but once a model is done then it goes into a process called rigging that is the team that gives the actual creature the skeleton that allows animators to move its disparate parts so once we had a rigged you know gray shaded non-textured version that that could immediately go into animation. We didn't have to wait. We didn't have to have a finished caterpillar to do animation work with. It allowed us to get a sense of scale, weight, locomotion in general. And they weren't buying it. <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised. Honestly, with a creature this big, though, we had to do it. But I know a lot of, I don't use this word disparagingly, but you know, a lot of non-creatives cannot see mm -hmm. the finish line. Right. So Degraciated, they think that somehow that's it. Yeah. Uh, luckily, Andrew, the showrunner, was responsive and he was very easy to work with. So that was never an issue with him. So I would just let him kind of fight those battles. The end product kind of speaks for itself. But yeah, definitely. I thought that the crocodile and the caterpillar just looked absolutely fantastic. I mean, obviously, these are huge BOWs, secondary infectants. In fact, get a bit nerdy. Um, I thought two of the best looking representations of a Resident Evil monster that, that, that we've seen. Uh, I'm sure you didn't, you didn't enjoy the budgets that perhaps some of the larger film productions had. It wasn't just the way they looked. I thought just the way that they moved, the way they were taken down, you know, the shots going into the caterpillar, the way you saw its blood kind of like spray out, almost like, like ribbons, I thought looked fantastic. Um, yeah, it was and more organic. RLP did the crocodile. It's all they did, but that's all I wanted them to do because of their work on Jurassic Park. <laughs> they had done some excellent work in that, and uh, so I knew I had to get them. If you watch it, I mean, it moves like a real, it has mass, it has weight, it has, there's no denying. And then they added the mutated infected qualities. But yeah, those, those two in particular, I will, I will totally take a Pepsi challenge against a lot of stuff that I see on film. 
I wonder what your take was on this, that it can be more challenging to make these things look good when they're real life, they're counterparts, they're just larger versions of what we see in real life, as opposed to, say, fantastical creatures which don't have any constraints on their dimensions. So a dragon can be any dimensions, its particular body, and it's not going to look jarring. Whereas obviously you're not going to get away with that with a creature that essentially is just a large caterpillar or a large crocodile. And an example of where I think it didn't quite look right, I'm interested in what you think about this and also that observation, is the direwolves on Game of Thrones which were husky German Shepherd crosses and one of them was an Arctic wolf depending where they were filming I don't know the process but just simply CGI to make larger something about them just looked off they were just basically they looked like very very large wolves and, they, and it, it just looked a little off compared to the crocodile and the uh, caterpillar which just looked absolutely phenomenal it's funny I think it's getting into Oracle's question about the dog the Cerberus um, the Cerberus and the dog was going to be a challenge because out of everything people have the most experience and most kind of like reference of, of what a dog should look like and move like the Cerberus was the hardest thing and for many a litany of different reasons what most people don't know is this is probably the first Resident Evil series, whatever, movie, where we didn't have access to trained Dobermans. The Dobermans in South Africa that we had were all domesticated animals. They were just lovable puppies. <laughs> they were sweet, and then most of them were female, and we knew it was written that this was supposed to be a male dog, and so we had one named Posh and another named Fedora. <laughs> <laughs> we had already started shooting the reveal and the way the director, the first block director wanted it was she was all like, okay, we're going to do real dog and you'll augment. I'm like, that's fine. Because ideally, that's the way I honestly, I like to work with practical whenever I can and just augment with visual effects. I knew we could do that with the dog. Problem was, there was a lot of frustration with it because there wasn't a lot of understanding by the director about what the animals, the animals needed very specific direction. The director, you know, as you know, when working on a set, you know, you're trying to hit your day. It's all about that day. You have an AD, an assistant director breathing down your neck. And she was adamant, no CG dog, no CG dog, except for key moments where they're jumping or whatever. So what ended up happening is it just didn't go well. So we ended up having to, to scratch it. The other thing you're fighting with, since this was inside Umbrella HQ, sets get struck all the time. This was uh, Wesker's lab, what we were working with, and they needed to strike it. And a lot of times what happens, they'll strike it for something else that needs to film in, then they'll bring it back. And that was happening a lot on the show. So we had limited time. So I don't know how it happened, but there was a guy who owned this dog named Diesel, a male Doberman with the ears and the crop tail and the whole nine yards. And I'm like, where was this guy hiding? <laughs> we started working with him. We got him to do key things as reference. You know, we got him to run because if nothing else, we needed reference. We needed reference footage of him. And we didn't have access to any kind of mocap stages in South Africa or anything like that. So that's what I ended up doing. And then there are key moments like where he jumps up at the elevator as it's closing on the girls. That was, Rodeo used that and then put their dog over it for shots like that. But most of the servers work in the show ended up being 90% CG because we just didn't have, we couldn't do like what they did in the first movie, which was yeah. take real dormants, slather them with methicil, make them look emaciated and make them look wet and, you know, add appliances. No, we couldn't go down that road. 
that ended up being one of the more challenging things to do was get that right. Because like I said, most people, whether they're, you don't even have to be technically inclined. They just, you instinctively know, hey, that's a real dog. So we knew we had this uphill battle. The director had all this great stuff in mind. She wanted to do these very dynamic things. She wanted the dog to jump out of the cage. The dog wouldn't do that. If any, the dog's either going to charge out or it's going to stalk out. The cage was on the ground already. Why would the dog jump? So that was something that, you know, changed even the bite sequence. That was a more protracted sequence the way it was storyboarded. Like there was a bit where Billy kicked it and Andrew was very cognizant of like, okay, we, we don't want to show, you know, things like we never see the fire extinguisher, you know, the dog's head in. Yeah, it was a much longer sequence. And when we watched it, we were like, all it's doing is it's kind of prolonging things and kind of like we need to get to the meat and potatoes of it. We need to see Billy get bit. We need to do that. Yeah, yeah. I do want to add that this is the first adaptation that actually showed us the giant spiders. Yes. No one gives them credit for it. When I saw the spider walking, I literally screamed, finally, (laughs) someone did it. (laughs) It's the first adaptation that I actually see that went the extra mile into putting the actual spiders into their universe that actually had me praising it because I couldn't think of any other place that i've seen the giant spiders i'm pleased back girl if you wanted to say anything else about the spider i'm pleased you mentioned that because yes you're absolutely right we've never seen them before i'm arachnophobe and it, it just looked wonderfully gruesome it's been surprising that no one has decided to tackle them until now yeah because most of the time in the games they're kind of they just look like tarantulas so i went for something a little bit more stealth like and more sleek they look like the code for Rock yes yeah i was thinking of you back girl because kevin <laughs> Batgirl, she is a huge Code Veronica fan. She's famous for it. And as soon as I saw them, I was like, yes, they look like the Code Veronica ones. Batgirl's going to love this. It looks like the big one that, that you release when you lift up the Nosferatu from the, oh, yeah. from the ice that Alexia comes out and says the spider to the fly line. That's what it looked like. It looked like that huge spider that comes out of the ice and just... How would you like her. to die? It's <laughs> my favorite quote. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that spider was just awesome with the introduction of it. It's like, oh, snap. And I do love the fact that the guy was actually carrying a Hydra. And then it's like, oh, he's dead. (laughs) Well, that's tragic. Goodbye, Hydra. Oh, by the way, did you guys ever name that spider? No, we actually didn't. You know, I feel bad because we didn't name, we didn't have a name for the caterpillar. We didn't have a name. I mean, we just referred to the dog or uh, Cerberus as Diesel. And then nothing for the spider. And then the crocodile, uh, our director, uh, Rachel Goldberg, her and the DP, Carmen Cabana, kind of referred to it as Crocky. So that's what it was known as. Crocky. <laughs> Love it. And I don't know why we made spiders a Peter. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, that's weird. Peter? <laughs> Maybe because of Peter Parker, Spider Man. Nice link. <laughs> The cool thing about the spider is one of the things that I wanted to do with the spider was put this egg sack on her. Very creepy. You yeah. saying about putting the egg sack on her back just made me think of the moths from the game series. Because <laughs> they used to lay their eggs on the back of characters. When I saw the egg sack, I thought, oh, here it comes. Now we're going to have a shot with all the babies breaking out of their eggs and, oh. and crawling all over something. Oh my god. That would have been a gnarly death scene. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to do was at the end, as Jade's trying to close that, you know, <laughs> conveniently placed door, um, he <laughs> uh, was just kind of crawling toward her and, no, 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 let's make her leap toward her and have her get skewered mid-leap. 
that was something that I was very happy with the way it turned out. And then the goo was a combination of practical and um, CG goo. Rodeo did a great job with that. One of my favorite shots in the show is the, is the close-up of the caterpillar as it's over Jade. You see the teeth inside and you see all the drool. And we had to add drool to her and then we had to carry that drool over into subsequent shots. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea there's fake like cgi goo and real goo yes i'm just imagining like bottles of with labels goo on them i will say going back to the uh, the dog bit that as much as of a challenge it sounds like you guys pretty much knocked it out of the park visually the dog looks fantastic i think one of the better things of this series is the visual effects so i applaud you for that the lighting and everything about it just looks so realistic it's you should be proud of that Thank you. I appreciate that. Mr. X did the liquor. ILP did the crocodile. And Rodeo did the caterpillar, the dog, the rat, the spider, and the lizard. If I was to, to summarize the series, it looks absolutely gorgeous. It competes with anything in terms of look and style. The only problems that I have with it are story. In terms of it being a Resident Evil product, it didn't have to be called Resident Evil. It just felt like it was so far away from the Resident Evil So the liquors in the Channel Tunnel, what a great location for uh, such a terrifying encounter. That was one of the best representations, at least to me, on screen from their design and their movement. It must have been both challenging and a joy to put these on screen too, right? That one too was, that was a chore because interestingly enough, we ended up doing that whole channel thing, the dual tunnel thing and inside a large stage. We actually had this really great location that funny enough has been used multiple times by Anderson's films for underground subterranean kind of looks. And we had it, contract was all signed and ready to go. And that's where we were going to film. And then come to find out that they were doing some kind of retro renovation to it. So we lost the location. I think we ended up losing two total before we settled on this. Okay, we're not going to find a location. We're going to have to create one. So we took two rather large stages at SBH, gutted them, and then the production team and the art department came in, set deck, and created the kind of subterranean, gunky, nasty world. And then they also created the four blue screen holes that obviously you see in the show, but that's what we used to extend the tunnel. Wow. On either side. So every shot where you're seeing like either Baxter's side or Jade's side, that sequence was all done by um, Mr. X. Amazing. Yeah. And then the liquor, it's funny because we do get a lot of praise for it. But the one thing I do, I did want to do with it, it was the only creature where I wanted to be careful, but I'm like, I don't want to do a one-to-one. I've never been crazy with this idea of this tumescent brain out there. It's just like the world's largest hitbox. <laughs> um, I, I never understood it. It's like, dude, you just you know blow that and you're done. I, I get it, you know, and I'm not trying to say that my idea was better, but what we tried to do is like, let's do this. Let's get some pieces of the skull that overlap the brain so it's not this perfectly exposed thing. And it's a shame we didn't get to highlight it as much. But one of the more ingenious things we did, because I always had a problem with the tongue as well. I'm like, how the hell is this thing working inside the liquor's body? You look at um, any of the CG movies when the tyrant is fighting them, the tongue, it's 100 feet long. How does that work from, I get it, it's cool and it's dynamic. Because we watched all those. We watched those for actually more than the movies, just so you guys know. We actually watched a lot of the CG stuff when it came to the liquor for reference. A lot of good locomotion and stuff that they had done. 
the Mr. X supervisor, David Jones, he's like, oh, well, you know, the woodpecker has the world's largest tongue in the animal kingdom. And I'm like, well, how's that work? It's like, well, it actually goes and wraps around the brain. What now? And so that's what we did. We actually, what you'll see is our, our liquor tongue actually, it's modeled that way. So it actually, right along the midsection of the, you can't see what I'm doing, obviously, but <laughs> midline of the brain, the tongue rests there. So that is how we justified the length, especially in that one shot where there's the face off between the liquor and her. It's there, it's animated there. You actually see the tongue kind of unwrap off the brain as it comes out. So that's one of the things we tried to infuse into it. And it's Something, I mean, if there is a season two, you know, that I want to expand on. I'm not interested in making them bigger or anything like that. I know the movies did that. I don't feel the need for that. One of the creatures that I would love to do is the hunter. So the liquor just, it was a hard thing to do just to get the location right. And then, oh my God. And the other thing too, because we were in a stage, the vehicles that were being used were all diesel powered. The doors to the stage had been set, had been closed. It built up and built up and built up and became toxic. So I get out, evacuate or whatever and clear the area. No one was harmed, thankfully. But did kind of succumb. They got dizzy. Their, I mean, their eyes were like bloodshot, that type of thing getting a bit too close to your source material yeah <laughs> because the liquor are the closest thing to human size we took one of our stunt performers put him in a green suit for that scene for that shot we had him start on top of the van and crawl his way toward jade he was removed digitally and then the liquor was added over the top of him that type of thing and same with when he smashed through the uh, windshield that was all done with a green suit performer as well wow that's cool yeah. The thing I really enjoyed about the liquors, not just their design, the ferocity that was put across by the way that you would see the victims just fly through, like, but at great distance as well, just get pulled and kind of reminds me of one or two scenes in, in Alien where you don't see the alien and then literally just someone just pulled right up through the vent and that's all you see. And just the speed and the distance with which people were being plucked out of the air. I thought I loved that. Yeah. We didn't get to highlight it the way I wanted to, but we kind of created like this little nest that they kind of sourced from. We see as, as Jade's making her way to the big blast door type thing. And when she looks back at Baxter and sees him and the umbrella troopers fighting him off, we tried to do that. We tried to just, we kept kind of throwing them in there like, all right, let's put one over here. Cause it was like, okay, it's dead. Let's just fill the space. The way it was shot by the director, Rob, he shot it more as a wonder. From the moment the liquor smashes the van windshield and gets inside and gets on top of the guy, open the door and they get out as a group. That was all done as one all the way up to the point where she gets to the blast door and her devil horns and then the mother, father, and the son escape. That was all done as a wonder. But Netflix decided it needed to be... Um, oh man, my heart breaks just hearing that. Because <laughs> like being able to master a one in such a visceral setting like that, it would have elevated that fight. Just the masterful direction of, of seeing a one with all that, with the liquors, would be amazing. I would love to see your take on a Resident Evil property. I can't write my way out of a, you know... <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was going to do, and that's why I had the question on Twitter, is I'm going to check out the S.D. Perry books. And, oh, yes. And see I saw that. Yes. What they are about, because a lot of people like them. The one thing I hear consistently is, oh, it's all right there. It's all right there. It's so easy. Why can't we just have a, an adaptation of the first game? Yeah. I keep hearing that and hearing that. I'm like, yes, I understand because I saw it. I went and saw it in the theaters, actually. I saw Welcome to Raccoon City. That was taking one and two and kind of compressing yeah. them which probably wasn't the best thing to do, but they did a hell of a job on the sets and stuff like that. They had some other weirdness and weird things in there as well. 
it's funny because my daughter was the one that pointed out to me. She said that even if we had taken the Resident Evil name off of this, all did something else, then the complaint would have been, oh, this is too much like Resident Evil. <laughs> You're right. It would have been a complaint regardless of what task. That's the thing. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. And the last thing, just so you guys know too, the last thing I want to do is get a season two, but find out that, yeah, but we're not going to give you the same budget. Oof, yeah. And that was the death of uh, The Walking Dead. Yeah. By far the majority of, of its followers and fans thoroughly enjoyed the first season, and obviously we all know the whole Frank. I'm a huge Daryl fan. Yeah, when you cut the budgets as much as MC did on that production, you get what you pay for, it's all going to suffer. Kevin, it's interesting you touched on it there. We recorded an entire podcast with Sean discussing that very thing, that whether the narrative of the video games can be translated directly onto the screen and the challenges with yeah. that. And we recorded for mm -hmm. over three hours. So to ask you, almost do the impossible, and just ask you briefly what your take is on that, whether you think that's even possible. Many would argue, myself included, although I'm a passionate fan, I just don't even know if it's possible just by the very nature of the narrative that we get in the video game, that it's going to be possible, you know, to translate that directly onto the big screen it all begins with the script you have to have a good script i mean if you started the movie off the way the first game does where like it's all just rushing to find bravo team i think it is then you hear the dogs you hear the servers then it's just a mad dash you know to get to the mansion right and then you get the introduction joe a wesker jill barry and then they split up it does come down to the actors because i do think with welcome to raccoon city it was weird to me the way they they had a weird take on leon just the way they wrote him as this kind of doofus you know yeah. like mm -hmm. what the hell's wrong it's like he was like, basically that audience character like what what's going on this that yeah that yeah that's an old trope and i think a lot of times that ends up insulting your audience get away from the pg-13 it has to be r you have to embrace the gore mm -hmm. i don't know if any of you guys saw this but my mind was blown when i watched this thing it was called the sadness oh i haven't seen that. you have to see that okay. that is <laughs> Basically, it's about this couple who live together. So it starts with them in the morning and they go about their day. And during the course of the day, this massive infection breaks out. This is a little bit different because the infection here, it just tosses out anybody's inhibitions. It's totally depraved. So it's not just about biting and eating, but there's also just this massive depravity to everything. But the gore in it, oh my God, it's wild, man. It's a lot of practical stuff. I'm looking at it, uh, Taiwanese from 2021, from last year. Yeah, they describe it as a body horror film. So I guess you're suggesting Resident Evil should start adapting more into a body horror film, you think? No, I meant in terms of the level, the artistry of the gore. It says here it's also inspired by the comic Cross. I'm just glad the Resident Evil is not based on its comics because those things are insane. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Very true. So I don't know if you're familiar with any of you are familiar with that comic, but imagine that in a live action form. That's kind of what you're getting. It's not just shock for shock value. There is a story there. You know, you got these two characters that are trying to find each other in the midst of this chaos and how each one of them is surviving in their own way. It's a very interesting story. It's pretty wild. It surprised the shit out of me. Pardon my French. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> because that was the other thing too, is we did this show during the height of COVID. So we only at peak had 40, what we called hero zeros. That is 40 extras, 40 stunt people made up in makeup that held up close to camera. That's it. Holy That's Every extra that was made up costs three times more than the average extra because of all the COVID tests necessary. Right. So we quickly blew through the budget on that. And the one thing I am proud of with the show, too, is a lot of our stuff is done in broad daylight. 
Caterpillar's broad daylight. The Cerberus starts out in a bright room and then it goes, you know, the emergency lighting kicks in and yeah, it goes red and there's some dark shots. That is also um, broad daylight. The Laker and the Spider kind of work best in those environments. You know what I mean? You could do a Laker in broad daylight, but the subterranean qualities of both those locations just help those creatures even more. Sure. And then the crocodile, of course, being broad daylight. No hiding of sins, you know. Right. The difficulty is that with a dark shot, you can hide flaws in a shot. You can actually get away with doing a lot less uh, work when you ha- when you can hide things in shadows. When everything is exposed in the bright light of day, you have to be very uh, much more precise. Yes, exactly. I, um, I was going to ask you, um, prior with your knowledge of Resident Evil, directors have their vision, producers have their vision, and clearly you have a vision when it comes to the monsters and Resident Evil. Did the meetings and chatter ever come to you and say, like, how do you vision these monsters to come to reality? Or was it more of just of a, of a compromised chatter? Or did you just have to agree with whatever um, the vision was initially? That was, and this is something I have to remind myself of more, you know, when I read negative stuff is the fact that with all the creature stuff, there was very, and I'm not kidding you, this was a first for me, there were very little changes, very little notes. Wow. could have gone any easier for me. The stuff that we were getting noted on the most were things like monitor inserts, like when Jade was talking to Arjun on the tablet, we went through a bunch of rounds on that stuff. Nothing is ever perfect, right? There's always, with, I have experience in film and television in both. I've always felt like, oh my God, if I just had two more hours, just give me that day. And the very first visual effects shot where Jade has got her head against the pavement and then the camera tilts up with her to reveal, you know, destroyed London. That was another one that was tough. Netflix weighed in a little bit on the dog because one of our versions of the dog actually, and it was a good note, it had a lot of pustules on him. It was a little too much. We did two element shoot days, and what and those were the funnest days. Me and my producer, Casey, work with the special effects team, and we shoot muzzle flashes, cartridges ejecting. We shot references of the chainsaw with blood on it. We shot heads blowing up. We shot you know gore. We shot the goo bags. There would be these one, two-liter bags full of this kind of yellowish <laughs> methyl still, and then there'd be a charge inside that would pop off, and the shit would fly everywhere. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we did two days of that, because the other interesting thing about the show is like not... One muzzle flash, not one gun firing is real. That is all us. The umbrella weapons were all 3D printed. So we had to kind of build a system where, you know, we had the muzzle flashes. Then we also had to have show the casings ejecting out of a port of the weapon. And then with the pistols, we had to do the slide animation in a whole nine yards. Because all we had is like when uh, Baxter kills Tate, that was just an airsoft gun. If you look, you can actually see the little CO2 or whatever in the air because it was cold. How did you like working with Constantine? Oh, they were fine. They were fine. I was mostly working with um, a guy by the name of Colin Scully, one of their creative executives. And then one of their heads, Robert Colzer, who's been on the films and stuff, he would weigh in on things. Honestly, he got to a point where we heard very little from them even. Did they weigh in on anything like as far as creative producing or was it more or less the non-creative aspect of that? With Netflix, it was mostly about the editing and making sure that they felt like, you know, nothing should take too much time. They would submit notes on, oh, you got to tighten this up. You got to cut this down. You got to cut this down. I didn't necessarily agree with that. Some comments that I've seen are people wanted, you know, they wanted more, you know, they, they would have liked to have seen more, you know, I would have liked to have done, oof, it was not an easy shoot. It's hard to source things there in South Africa if we needed uh, any, any kind of equipment. 
Right, uh, Batgirl, you've got the next question. What was your favorite and what was your most challenging visual effect for the production? I have quite a few, you know. Ah, boy. The most challenging is is easier because I kind of spoke to that. Bringing the servers to life for a litany of reasons. And as far as favorite goes, I, I don't think I have a standalone. I mean, which is great. I have 10 or more, you know. I mean, it sounds like you're equally proud of, of them all. And, you know, they all, all do look fantastic. Yeah, I'm proud of obviously I'm proud of the crocodile I'm proud of the caterpillar the, you know, I'm proud of the caterpillar because the caterpillar was you know something that like I said various people wanted to just get rid of that sequence would have been horrible without I mean I'm proud of the lead into that too the the burning uh, that was the other we didn't really talk about that but that whole defense perimeter thing I could talk for an hour about that location <laughs> the fire retardant when the fire stops and then it switches over to the fire retardant it was very windy up there and what ended up happening is that fire retardant was supposed to blow forward but because of the wind it all came inside the circle oh yeah and there was no taking it back at that point the set that shit contaminated everything rion is dick face was he was caked in it all the other zeros were caked in it we had to create the extension for it going the other direction. And backing up, when he walks through the flames, he was a CG digi double, and that was all done digitally by Rodeo, him melting on camera. Wow. That was all digital. Holy cow. Yeah. I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Movie making is so difficult. Yeah. So complex. Yeah. It blows my mind that anything ever gets finished. It's funny you say that. That's the hardest part when people just, I don't mind any criticism, even if it's visual effects. But when I'm, when I'm reading stuff like, oh, it's dog shit, it sucks, it's trash. It's like, okay, why? You know what I mean? I don't mind you. I don't mind hate as long as you, you know, just do yourself a favor, do me a favor, expand on it and tell me. If it's just going to be a retread though of like, oh, it's not the games, it's not the games. You know, then there's, of course, with this show, there was the whole... Discounted out of hand because it's not the things that they wanted. And they're not taking into consideration the work, the complexity, all the things that go into making every TV show and every movie. I've learned to never say something looks like shit. I try real hard is never to use verbiage like that. Like, oh my God, that's trash. Or, oh my God, that's shit. Even if I don't like it, I never go at it like that. I try to at least approach it from like, hey, let's try this. Hey, this isn't what I was thinking. Let's do this and this and this. That's an easy thing to extrapolate to anything you don't like. A common thing, and I think you already expressed it, was the story and the writing. That's a perfect example. You know, if you don't, if you're not responding to it or you're not, you're not getting it. And I get it. Trust me when I read the whole, God, bringing it up, but the whole Zootopia thing and, you know, stuff like that. I get it. <laughs> For me, I'm not a writer, but the problem with references like that is it's it just, okay, one, you're dating yourself, and it's not really necessary, and two, it's also out of time in a way. But once again, like you said, I'm not a writer, but I can appreciate certain things. But what was interesting to me over the course of this is just seeing people who haven't watched it see that and then write it off. This hive mentality of like, Oh, one person doesn't like it. Okay, well, thanks. I'm not going to waste my time. And I'm like, wow, really? 
it's been released during uh, very much during a time where there just seems to be almost this industry of various critics, be they YouTube channels, that kind of just feed in to this desire just to kind of laugh and ridicule. And there's been a lot of this I've seen with the Kenobi show, with the Book of Boba Fett. These channels just exist simply to knock things and they're very disingenuous. I'm not going to be too specific. I don't want to give it the air of, of publicity, but there was one particular review I saw and the poster for this review was a picture of the actor who plays Jade. The reviewer had purposely distorted and fish-eyed, giving an unnaturally wide nose to, oh. to the actor in the shot. And I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he did that. I think at best it was an extreme bad taste. And then just proceeded to be a review that was simply just repeating negative stereotypes and not, as Joe says, not articulating the reasons behind the criticisms, just, you know, just a series of slurs without actually any substance to the criticism. This industry almost of channels that are just there to exist to just knock shows. For me, what I did when I started watching it, I wasn't thinking of it. Okay, this is a Resident Evil series. I was just thinking, I'm going to give this series a try. Okay. And yeah. watch the elements that come with it and just roll from there. I yeah. told my dad, my dad is a very big Resident Evil fan. He's been playing since 96. I've been sitting right next to him. He asked me, he's like, do you like it? I'm like, as a series itself? Yes, as a Resident Evil fan, there are things that I do not like. Yeah. And it's story-wise. It's story-wise. I did like Evelyn Marcus She's, giving her yeah. I thought she giving was fantastic. her a platform. Just her character in general trying to make sense of basically trying to give glory back to her family name because everyone knows James Marcus got screwed over by Spencer. Yes. I watched it objectively with my RE fan. Honestly, when I went to see Welcome to Raccoon City, I noticed that about myself. I went in watching it as a Resident Evil fan, Uh and I didn't give it a fair shot. I started laughing and just (laughs) sighing, and my best friend was like, I love it. And she goes, I know you don't. (laughs) So this time around, I decided, let me take an objective approach, set myself back, watch this as a brand new title, and ignore the whole Resident Evil name. Yeah, there are healthy criticisms that can be made. It's just one of those things where like, if you're on social media and you're like actively on that the day of some release, you have to like understand that you have to formulate your own opinion before you become impressionable by other people, influenced by friends and saying it's not good. So you have this perception already that you're hard on it before you even see it. I'll listen to my friends when it comes to their opinions, but I have to come from a neutral standpoint in place before I even consider anything else. Because I think today's day and age with social media, it has become that hive minded thing, like Kevin said, where you just believe whatever someone tells you because there's so many, there's so much information. There's so many shows and movies out there and businesses are vying for your time and attention, but there's so much out there that you'd rather just believe what your friend tells you because you'd rather skip it if it's not worth it. But just don't believe that. You have to like look into it for yourself a lot of this seems to people want things to exist in their extremes you know it's either extremely good or extremely bad and i've seen a lot of people seem to not be able to detach from that and just focus on the good not just be kind of overwhelmed by the bad i for one as a huge resident evil fan and kind of i suppose as an old school fan as a traditionalist that's always wanted to see a very close adaptation put on the big screen i didn't enjoy i didn't like the just from a narrative point of view i mean it was fantastic to see lance reddick's performance but just from the narrative point of view i didn't enjoy 
enjoy the clone story but there was so much about this that was new and outside of the series the video game narrative that I really really liked you've seen the criticism Kevin that it was kind of too much of a teen drama yeah, yeah. yeah there was one scene that I didn't enjoy for that reason that I thought went too far in that way with the skateboard and the party but that didn't detract from the fact there was much about seeing the relationship between Jade and Billy and how they would deal with moving to a new town you know because I want empathy when these characters die or, or something befalls them I want to have the empathy from seeing them just living in the real world I mean a very quick example of this you know because people have criticized the pace there was a scene when you saw Jade working on the virus and working you know on a sample from the um that screamer's head there's a touching moment when she discovers that Amrita's pregnant this scene would be brought up by the critics that have said it you know, it's, it's too slow pace and I'm waiting waiting for things to develop but then when you get to see Amrita's demise you know it's not just like another Star Trek red shirt that, that's dying I've got a lot more empathy now for the character because you know those scenes that built up that talking about her pregnancy yeah yeah I would certainly defend that scene too. You hit the nail on the head when it comes to empathy and creating character, especially like going back to Resident Evil Arclay that I directed when it comes to people like it, but it's all about character. So if you don't care about the slow moving, slow burning aspect to it, yeah, you kind of take away the slow character growth that this show does offer when it does. Anya, leave him. He's not yours anymore. If you wanted to elaborate any more on any kind of other visual effects you, you may have not talked about that you did that may not have to do with the monsters, it, it may have to do with the settings or like adding like really subtle effects that we assume that is only through the through the lens of the camera. Doesn't sound like much, but I can't reiterate it enough. Every muzzle flash, every time he fired that AK, and we had to add the actual bayonet to the end of the um, to the end of the rifle because you know didn't want to kill anybody because he slashes <laughs> triple zeros with it and whatnot. So that was a CG blade. The blood was either uh, 2D blood or uh, 3D blood. We had to add shell casings as they were firing. Um, and then he runs out of ammo, he stabs a zero with it, and then he switches to the two handguns. Same thing. Anytime anybody was taken down, people just mined the action, but we had to create all the blood, whether it's a headshot or not, body shot, whatever it was. So that one took considerable amount of time and just artistry and technique to pull off. And most people wouldn't even think it was a visual effect per se. And then another sequence they did was in episode one, where we're first introduced to the zeros for the first time. Jade setting down the bunny and she's in this kind of like city square type environment and basically it's overgrown kind of I am legend you know there's vegetation and stuff that was only dressed up to the first story everything above that had to be degraded and destroyed to match that when they come back and they edit the sequence together I'm seeing this and the camera's usually dutched and pointed upward toward the sky so it's catching the second and third story of the buildings and I'm like and no one's saying anything and I'm like you guys realize we have to fix this <laughs> like, 
that's gonna look like shit. How do you justify this? So that that wasn't even something that was scripted. So these awesome artists at Mr. Wolf, you know, had to go in. And we had no blue screen, no green screen. It was all roto. And roto, when the zeros overlapped the buildings or jade overlapped the building, had to be roto. And then they would go in and add the weather staining from like rain. They would break out windows. They would break balcony railings and stuff like that. All that stuff was added by them. That's a big and job. And then the other one that turned out pretty well considering an initial nightmare it was was the billy bathroom ode to re3r where jill's in the bathroom looking at herself and she has that hallucination of turning into a zombie because we were seeing only her hands camera side we were only seeing the hands and whatnot and then we were seeing her reflection in the mirror what i wanted to do is i wanted to build a mirrored set so that her stunt performer jenny could wear the camera rig come in and they would in sync do the movements and it would all be captured in camera that way and then we just add the appearance of glass to sell the gag but the production just didn't have time or we didn't have the space to do that so what we ended up doing was building like just a one half you know just the bathroom itself for the one side and we shot with a real mirror so poor sienna had to wear this cumbersome camera rig from her waist all the way up up to the bottom of her chin and so her complete stomach chest good portion of arms completely obliterated by this rig and we had to film it twice because we did one round with her coming in normal and then we had to do it again with her made up as a, a zero I had a company called Mars do it. Martians, aliens, robot, zombies. <laughs> they're, they're a small company and they're kind of claiming the fame right now is they're doing a lot of really good research into machine learning and AI. They're finding unique ways to actually do rotoscoping, which is normally a basically rotoscoping is where you trace an outline of something, whether it's an actor or whatever. And it can be very tedious. And a lot of times, like if it's an actor running or someone doing something, it's multiple shapes that make up that roto. You rarely do this thing where you just trace the complete outline of someone and call it a day because the movements are so they can be so quick and so uh, disparate that you kind of break it down to its base forms and you end up with like 50 or 100 shapes inside a body of someone running that type of thing it's a very it's kind of like an artistry and a technique that's looked down upon but I have great admiration for people that do it because it's very cumbersome it's very time consuming and, and I rely on it a lot because I for one like on this show I don't use a lot of blue screens or green screens because i don't like eliminating natural lighting if we're outside right yeah yeah sure all the crocodile stuff when billy's running that's all roto yeah it's crazy yeah i'm proud of that shot it turned out well that was one i had to, i hammered on him hard for it the the mirror shot we had to recreate her shirt and it was one of those things too as a supervisor you have to be aware and luckily because what ended up happening is she wears this kind of um jacket she's got this necklace as well so when they were putting the rig on her they actually put the rig and the harness on top of her jacket so it was cinching the jacket and i'm like no 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 no, no. take the jacket off put the harness on her over her shirt and then put the jacket back on right at least get that for free yeah exactly i literally had to stop them practically yell at them like no no, no stop just please you're already this is an expensive shot to begin with come on and they were rushing because the thing with Anna and tamara's they were both minors so we had very little time with them each day oh right and this is the other thing that bums me out about sean more bummed for them because they are just sweethearts I'm not, and ella is a sweetheart i mean she is just they're just the nicest people i'm not just saying that man i've worked on enough shows you know and i've worked on some legitimate turds mind you i've worked on <laughs> i worked on the emoji movie <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> 
<laughs> You've never admitted to that before. Does he want to? <laughs> yeah. I, I can edit this out, Joe. <laughs> right. I just mentally heard dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah, yes, Aaron. Found your cold open, I think. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. I yes. worked the emoji movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Everything you're saying, Kevin, dovetails nicely with my last question here. Producers and uh, directors are always looking for what's the next best piece of software, the next best technique. And with those improvements, with those um, innovations, come changes in technique. And, and it's, it's a constantly evolving, movie making is a constantly evolving animal. Did you see the production pipeline for this particular project. How did you guys innovate? What was the new stuff? What was the the evolution? How do you feel that this project kicked the can into the future as to how we make films? I mean, for us, it was, we pretty much relied on a lot of traditional pipelines. For me, it was more about just, once again, it was about the evolution of, of the creature work. There's that infamous practical effects are better than CGI. It's like, here we go again. I'm sorry, but you'll never get a practical version of Davy Jones looking as good as Davy Jones did. You'll never get a practical version of Caesar looking as good as Caesar did. You'll never get a 100-foot crocodile looking as good as it did in our show, practically. <laughs> They've tried it. They've done all these croc movies, you know. They're all good tools. And the person that you're looking for to run the show is a craftsman who understands that this is a box of tools that are meant to be used for what they're good for. And to augment one another. That's the way I like, I like to work, you know, except in those extreme cases when you, you know, you know that, okay, we've got to do it CG. But when it comes to blood and gore and stuff like that, by all means, yeah, let's try to do it real. Do it, do it, well, do it practically, you know, do it special effects. Yeah. Oracle, you've got the final question. There will never be a final question. Instead of an interview, you should call it an ongoing conversation. <laughs> as long as you're happy to edit it all, Joe. We've been recording for almost three hours now. We can talk for hours I if think we just need. It makes us all officially nerds, doesn't it, really? <laughs> and we got to still review the show. <laughs> we decided to record the review tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, right, over to you, Aaron. All right. The question being is, basically, is there any projects you're currently working on or in the future that you're allowed to talk about? At the end of the show, when I delivered it, after I finished, the idea for the liquor billboard came up. I ended up overseeing the billboard that was done for Times Square. That was out of this world. I still, I mean, I'm being really stupid, but I was trying to work out how that even works. It's just incredible. (laughs) The original idea, it was going to be Times Square and Piccadilly. Money became a factor, so it ended just being... Oh, you mean Pic- what, Piccadilly Circus in England? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> I would have driven yeah. down to have seen that. Oh, darn it. That billboard amazing. Oh, I would have filmed it, put it on the website. <laughs> we had to use another studio for that because Mr. X, who'd done the liquor, they went through a really hard transition during the show where their company kind of imploded. Their creative head left the company. Oof. And while we were doing our show... And then he went to start another company. Not before long, he started poaching people from Mr. X. Oh, yeah. So by the time the show wrapped, Mr. X is no more now. They folded into MPC, Moving Picture Company. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Mr. X is no more. So I ended up making calls around town, and we ended up with Tippett Studios. They are also the same ones who did the Book of Boba Fett and the um, Obi-Wan Kenobi billboards as well. What was great about this one is we literally broke that fourth wall, break through the glass and look at the crowd and that kind of thing. It's just astonishing. I finished that 
two weeks before the show dropped. And then I'd just been helping with marketing and stuff like that, getting together, trying to get together before and afters and stuff like that. And then I've also been doing like consulting for Netflix. I've been breaking down scripts of other potential shows. Once again, this goes back to what I talked about, how like I have a passion for certain things. Like there's stuff out there right now that I would like um, the live action adaptation of Ghost of Tsushima. I would love to be involved with because um, the guy who directed John Wick is doing that. I just read this fantastic graphic novel. I think it came out in 2020 called Something is Killing the Children. It's fantastic. I think it won an Eisner Award. Very cool, very dark, gory. These teenagers and these children go missing, and it's this malevolent creature that's doing it. It's the stuff of nightmares. But that one, apparently, I'd found out was optioned by Netflix. On top of that, Mike Flanagan, whom I'm a big fan of, is involved. Mike Flanagan, he's done all the haunting of Hill House. Yeah, yeah. He did, I think, one of the greatest sequels ever, Dr. Sleep. I love that film. So I'm a huge fan of his. I'm pursuing that. I have wanted to work on a John Wick movie because I just want to work with Keanu. And where can people find you, Kevin, if they want to keep an eye out on your updates and what, what's coming up? Because I know you you very kindly responded back to us when we, we found you on Twitter. Yeah, I, I try to answer. And once I get a message, it's like, yeah, I've got to answer that. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I will always respond. And especially it'll be interesting, like I said, to see what happens with this show. If there's going to be a season two or, you know. Netflix has a bunch of interesting things in the pipe. And then I almost did the Generation V, which was the uh, boys spinoff, but the timing wasn't right for that. There's a lot of stuff out there. I haven't committed to anything yet, but I am eager to get back into it. We really, really look forward, Kevin, to, to seeing more of your work. And I, for one, hope that there's a season two just to see some of the, the special effects and for you to work on that on that season two. Because as we mentioned before, these were just absolutely fantastic. Some of the best representation of the secondary infectants of the BOWs as fans we've seen. Thank you so very, very much for your time, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. It's been very enjoyable, but also very, very informative to listen to yourself and Joe and Sean, of course, being in, in the similar industry. So thank you so much. Oh, no problem. Um, really nice to meet you kevin oh, it was nice to meet you all too thank you i appreciate it it was very fun yeah nice to meet you kevin and i really appreciated seeing your monsters come to life in resident evil on netflix appreciate and it. thank you for the spider finally <laughs> <laughs> and that big ass alligator come on yes <laughs> but come on man I want you to give kudos to everybody that worked on this because you all did a fantastic job. Thank you. And I will do so. Just stay in touch with us. You never know. We might say, hey, you want to come back here and talk to us about this? Yeah, well, I think <laughs> should we meet up tomorrow, same time tomorrow for our Preacher podcast. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. Everyone, thanks. Thanks for today. Thanks, that was Kevin. Fun. Yep. Thank you. The thing about Evan's summation of the show, which I really appreciated, was, you know, these things are hard to make. When you're reviewing them, try to review them with, with some grace and some appreciation for the effort that was put in. I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Wall. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Reva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Want to come to dinner?